I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, I'm going to have you introduce this, and don't forget uh, what we need to add into the beginning of this. Absolutely. Um, we have a very special guest with us today. We've got Gary from Australia, and Gary was part of a crew that was, uh, he's part of the uh, Australian Yowie Research, and they actually, uh, one of their guys, a gentleman named Buck, I think somebody just, and Gary's going to correct me if I got the story wrong, but he just had the FLIR camera, picked it up, scanned around. Of course, you know, they knew there's nothing out there. There's no indication, and bam, there it was. They caught two of them on film. So I'm going to bring I'm going to bring Gary on in just a second. And for all you folks out there that would like to support the project and support our channel, uh, you can do that if you want to do so. Uh, just go to Patreon forward slash Creek Devil. And uh, it will do the rest for you. All right. Gary, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. All right. So did I get that part right? Um, kind of how it uh, turned out with uh, Buck. Just somebody handed him the fleur or he picked it up. And Very close. Very close, Mike. So Tell us what how, happened. Yeah, for sure. So how that actually happened. Uh, so we decided on this, on this particular area uh, a couple of months uh, before we, uh, Buck actually got those thermals. So it involved a another expedition where we were on a local dam on the kayaks doing a, doing a night expedition, having, having a look around, which that particular night we, we actually did get eyes shine. We found footprints. Um, Buck Buckingham and Tony actually saw a, a being move off through the bush. And anyway, at the end of that night, we were coming back up the hill to load the kayaks and that back into my van. And as we were taking the equipment up the hill um, to, to the van, uh, Dean actually got growled at. Uh, when I went up there, I heard something move, but Dean Harrison actually got growled at um, when he was taking his kayak up. So that sparked an investigation on that particular ridgeline. And from there, I ended up getting thermals about roughly two, three weeks later. Uh, not quite as good as, 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 as Bucks. Uh, however, it was the same ridgeline. So myself and Dean actually went back a little later on during the day with Jake and Fellows. And we actually tracked this ridgeline, followed it all the way up to the top as far as we could go. Um, along the way, finding tracks, footprints. We even found knuckle prints as well. Uh, just just, just so those typical characteristics that, that you do find in this situation. And then once we got to the top of this ridgeline, we, we, we did find a rarely used bushwalking trail. And that, that, that then kicked off uh, the idea to actually start doing our night expeditions in this particular area. So what actually happened was that particular night, Buck had never actually used one of these thermals before. So 
because I had a little bit more experience with this thermal, with with the the operation of the buttons, that kind of thing, and where they, where they're placed and what each button does, because some buttons have a, have a multi function. I gave Buck a quick five minute rundown on the 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 basics, so enough that he was able to use the camera with semi confidence. So myself, uh, Shannon Guthrie, and Dean were actually sitting back at base camp. And Dean, uh, sorry, Buck walked off by himself just to just to play with the camera and uh, see what he can work out and have a look around. And after roughly an hour to an hour and a half, all of a sudden Buck comes over the radio saying, "I think I've got something." So uh, myself and uh, Dean we actually grabbed grabbed our thermal cameras, had a look around. We 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 couldn't see much. Uh, Buck did have a, th- uh, a a heat signature on camera that wasn't. It didn't specify too much. It didn't have any any any, any uh, uh, defining characteristics that would point out as there's there, there's a large object there. It was just a a distant heat signature that he, he couldn't work out. Anyway, he he put the camera down, uh, stood in the darkness for a while, and then every, every now and again, now and again, he he pick it up, scan around, and lo and behold, uh, roughly half hour, forty minutes after that. He come to the radio saying, "I've definitely got something," and it was it, it was as you say. He 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 picked it up within seconds and panned around, and uh, caught these two beings roughly twenty to thirty meters off of, off the trail that we're on, um, standing in the bush back there. Yeah, and as I recall, you guys w- w- later went back and just kind of did an analysis and estimated that these things were roughly about nine feet tall. Am I correct on that? Yeah, so so somewhere between the eight and nine foot tall, correct? Uh, that that was also corresponding with some seventeen inch track impressions that we found back there as well. Yeah, and you know what really uh, caught my attention, what I really appreciated about it, I guess you could say, is the fact that there was no indication they were there, and this was my experience a year ago. Almost to the day, a year ago, about, you know, last mid-last August, I was out in an area, and I just knew it was a complete bust. There's nothing there, and it turned out to be quite, you know, they were there were actually quite a few of them there. Uh-huh. And, Will, that actually kind of corresponds with your, your sightings. There's nothing there, and then, bam, there they are, right? Well, yeah, I mean, not something I expected. <laughs> they they, so they, they certainly don't. They, they they don't like like it's it's as you said. Like when 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 these beings came into the area, we we heard nothing. There was there was two of them, and you you think you think mass of that size times two, you, yes. you would hear something coming in. Buck heard nothing. We heard nothing, and when they left uh, again, like they same thing. They just vanished. There was no noise. There was nothing, and it's 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 a very confusing situation like even with with the thermals that, that that i got a few months before that on this again on the same ridge line just down lower uh when when they arrived it was like a bulldozer coming through the bush you could not mistake it and they they, they pushed their way through the bush and i pull I, I got the camera pull the camera up and look who's there two 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 beings that come down down from the top of the ridge line you know i, I watched these beings move around you you, you could hear them and when that when that encounter finished, which was roughly about fifteen minutes, when a car drove past and sort of I guess uh, piqued their curiosity to look down where the car was going past, which is down where we were standing, they then noticed that myself and Jacob were standing down there watching them. 
And the same situation when when it was all over and done with, they they were that quiet. They moved off with no sound. Again, when they come down, it was like a bulldozer. When they left, literally nothing. And again, the 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 same situation with with uh, Bucks thermals as well. They arrived silently. They left silently. Yeah, it seems it really does seem like if they want to be stealthy, uh, they know how to do that. Correct. Very very they're very adept at it. Correct. Let me ask you this, and I, you know, looking at the video, I think you may have been one of the gentlemen that was. Uh, you guys were on an expedition. And I, I think I got the name right. It, I think it was called the Strickland Trail. Uh, Stickland, S-T-I-C-K. Stickland Trail. Okay, well, that yes. seems sort of uh, apropos because you guys are walking along this trail and you would find branches that were, and this is an area that, if I understand, if I remember correctly, nobody goes there. It's not really a well-traveled uh, area. But you'd find these branches they could not have possibly have fallen from the tree and then impaled themselves in the ground. They're vertical. They're stuck in the ground. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about that? Yeah, mate, for sure. So the name Stickland actually was coined by Dean himself. The the trail the trail isn't actually called Stickland. That's just what we call it because of the sticks and the branches that we did find in the ground. So first and foremost a percentage of this will happen naturally we we obviously can't dispute that um you know mother mother nature does do some tricky things however some of these sticks and uh the the, the size can be a, a very thin twig or it can be a quite a quite a thick stick you know um an inch to an inch to an inch and a half in, in uh, diameter and these these sticks or twigs uh, can be can be stuck an inch in the ground they can be stuck six inches in the ground uh, now it, it it sounds a bit mysterious and confusing, but when you when you come across these these kind of sticks, where they they correlate to to certain trails through certain animal trails through the bush, they correlate with creeks and that kind of thing, or you you'll come across five in a row. So one, two, three, four, five, and they're all spaced out roughly a meter apart. And this is in in an area where we actually do find symbols on the ground made out of broken uh, sticks and twigs and that kind of thing. Uh, like we were up there the other day in, in, in the same area, just ha- having a look around, and we found a triangle on the ground, uh, which which is something we, we, we actually do find quite a bit. But the the intriguing thing about this triangle was the way that the sticks were placed, there's no way it could have happened naturally. So what, one stick was under, and when it went to the, to the next point of the triangle, it was, it, was, it was over. So it was under, over, under, over, under, over. So there's there's no way that, that a triangle could could land like that. I mean, if there if, if if there is a possibility that could happen, it, it you know it might be like a, a one two percent chance that that Mother Nature's done that. But when you correlate the amount of sticks that we find on the ground uh, with these symbols on the ground, it doesn't leave much room for anything else. Yeah, I looked at the sticks, and you know I've been out in the woods a lot, um, you know most of my life. I have never seen a stick especially the little twigs that are impaled vertically in the ground uh, they can't really fall from a tree if they fall from a tree they're just going to kind of those little twigs are just going to be almost like a leaf so i That's there's exactly just no right. way exactly and also in on side that's like some 
not some, but probably a, a large majority of the, the sticks that we find, there is no tree canopy above the where where, the, where these sticks have supposedly landed. Uh, you know, because obviously you know gravity, etc. Uh, it's going to fall from somewhere, and a lot of the time we actually do find that again we, we we do find these sticks with no tree canopy above, like in in, in a very open clear space. We, we we've even found them around a, a, a particular dam that we've been to. Where that with where where they are known to to hang out, and we found these same sticks jammed in on the bank of the dam as well. Uh, again, with no, we, with no tree canopy above. Oh, I didn't know that. Without a tree canopy, okay, that makes it a little a little more uh, challenging for Mother Nature to put a stick in the ground. Exactly, there's nothing above. <laughs> I say confusing. that tongue in cheek. It's just no way. <laughs> For sure, mate. For sure, and look, there's there, there are other locations that we that we do find these these sticks and these twigs, and the strange thing is, well, I should say the lucky thing is that since we've come out and spoken about the sticks in the ground, obviously there's a percentage of people that will not go past Mother Nature, but since we come out with our evidence of, of the, the the sticks stuck on the ground, we've had a lot of people contact us at Australian Yellow Research from different parts of the country so that they've they've found very similar things where the the points start to add up where they they, they think they've heard something they, they they thought they heard something walking through the bush they've seen they've seen a stone get thrown or something like that and then they found these sticks in the ground it wasn't until we actually come again we, we actually come in and spoke about these sticks that then these people contacted us in different parts of the country and said yes we actually do find these sticks as well so, I mean, what do they mean? We don't know. We are trying to work that out. Uh, but, yeah, we continue to find these sticks. Unfortunately, in the area that we um, got these thermals that night, uh, the local rangers have decided to do to do a bit of land clearing, uh, which to me is a little bit coincidental that Buck gets these thermals and also the rangers decide to start doing some land clearing in that area. Uh, to me, that doesn't really add up. It's a little bit too coincidental. Uh, however, my what kind of land clearing do they do? Are they go into their bulldozer or what? Uh, how do yes. they? Uh, with so with again going going back to this particular trail, like you said, it, it isn't a highly used trail. There are there are parts of it where bushwalkers do use, but where we are, it's very very rarely used. Even even say, I think we, the amount of times we've been up there. I think we've seen two people, and we've been up there a hell of a lot. Uh, but, yeah, so the, the rangers are using a, a tractor with a uh, large mowing device on the back of it. So basically all, all, all the grass that's gotten from, you know, so half a metre to a metre high, all the, all the weeds and that kind of stuff, um, they've now gone through and cleared the whole area. And, again, coincidentally, they only, uh, they only decided to do that since the footage of the thermals came out. Uh, that's interesting. I wonder what the what the reason is. Um, so, have you guys seen any in these areas where the sticks are and that sort of thing? Do you have any other evidence, like something like either knuckle prints or footprints? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, again, like we're, we're uh, back, back where Buck got the thermals. In, when we did investigate in behind there, we, we did find seventeen inch tracks. When we tracked up this ridge line. Uh, we, we did find foot impressions most of the way up to the top of the ridgeline. We found knuckle prints up there. Uh, then in the creek uh, directly below this ridgeline, we found scat. 
Uh, so that scat has actually gone off to get tested. Uh, we, we, we found uh, big, big X markers, uh, tree breaks, all, all, all the usual um, tree indications that, that you guys have over there as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just did some real quick calculations. So if you got a 17 inch track, uh, we multiplied that by 6.6 divided by 12 and you come up with uh, just not quite 9.4 feet tall. So that's big. For sure. I mean, what what what, what people don't, don't realize as well is that, yeah, the, 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 night, the night that we got those thermals, even though they just, even though they disappeared in front of in, in front of Buck's eyes. They actually did not leave us the whole night. They actually did hang around. Like we went to bed at roughly about three a.m. Uh, Dean and Shannon had uh, jumped in jumped in, in into the hammocks uh, roughly about two o'clock, and myself and Buck were still sitting up at about two thirty, just discussing and talking that kind of thing. And you could hear them walking around camp far enough out of sight. That you couldn't see anything or make anything out, but you could you could hear the the bipedal walking around camp, and it wasn't until myself and Buck actually did go to bed as well that I think they got a little bit closer. They start snapping branches, that kind of thing as well. So you you just start to fall asleep, and then bang, a big shotgun sound to go off with with, with a branch getting snapped. Uh, but I mean, like it, it it is it is an area that over over the years. We've, we have we have had many many people come to us with their encounters and sightings. It is probably the number one hotspot um, in Australia. To be honest with you, this is um, in Queensland. Correct. Yes, on the east okay. coast. You know, it cracked me up. I'd forgot about the uh, hammocks. I'm like, hey, you've got to be kidding. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hammocks, really? I'm not even doing a tent. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, mean, I, 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 I did suggest to Dean to uh, that, that we should take swags out, but he was he was stressed about uh, getting getting trampled in, in inside a swag uh, because you can't see what's going on. So, but you know, even though we are in hammocks, uh, we we are still sleeping with with with, with a thermal camera in our hands. Uh, but I mean, I'm saying that I mean, like even like the 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 night that. The thermals happened, and we had so much activity that night. Uh, once we went to bed, surprisingly, we all, we all still went to sleep very comfortably. Like there, there, there was no there's no stress, there's no nervousness. We all just cool. That was that was great. Right, I'm going to bed. Good night, and uh, <laughs> off we went. And again, it's only when we wake up to again the term shotguns going off in the night um, from the left, the right, north, south, east, west around us. Um, which I'm saying that again, you know, because they they, they did hang around for the, for the most of the night, and as you would have seen on that video footage, uh, the next morning when they left those stick symbols in the ground uh, with the the X, the 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 the, the, the vertical stick, the, the back was number four, uh, and yeah, that 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 would have been placed somewhere. I'm going to say somewhere between uh, four thirty and five thirty that morning. Uh, we, we, we don't know what they mean. We, we are trying to work it out, uh, trying to use uh, ancient Sumerian or the, the ancient rune stones, that kind of thing, trying try to correlate symbols and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I think there was some kind of communication there that night. Uh, unfortunately, we don't speak Yowie. Um, ho hopefully they can come out of the bush and teach us someday soon. Yeah, 
I, I think what they were actually saying is, uh, okay, there's four of these guys there. Uh, there, it's going to be kind of like sushi and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, mate. I mean, like we 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 do walk around in in the bush with with, with no with no light on. It is it's, it is literally like um, we we all, all have a thermal camera. And we just walk through the bush in the dark with, with, with no lights. I mean, the only, only, only light that we do use is red light because it doesn't carry through the bush. And it's not an intrusive light. So the only time we use white light is around base camp. As soon as we leave base camp, white light is not allowed to be used. And that, that basically is, is, is to make them be these beings who are more comfortable to, I guess, come into us. And on the off chance, because we are in the pitch black ourselves, we might catch one of them unawares. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Will's talked about that. Um, Will, it wasn't so much with these creatures, but just, you know, kind of in general. You're, you, We talked about it on the last episode. Uh, you're driving along, and you turn the lights off. Right. Yeah, we, 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 we haven't tried that. Um, to be honest with you, we, we, I think we, we got a little bit too uh, – the, the, the wildlife with kangaroos and stuff like that. I think we'd end up collecting uh, a few kangaroos and – Wallabies, if we, if we tried that. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, but it, but there's a, I think there's just kind of a, a concept there that you turn the lights off and that, you know, they're, they feel more comfortable. All the creatures do. Correct. Correct. It's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's funny you say that. Um, even I'm more comfortable with, with the lights off. I, I think because I've gotten so used to, not having lights in the bush. Um, I mean, we we went up to the Sunshine Coast, which is about two, two and a half, two to two and a half hours north of where we currently are here in the Gold Coast um, to to meet up with some, some fellow researchers up there, and their methods still involve using white light. And myself and Dean were sitting in the bush, spaced roughly roughly about a uh, hundred feet apart, and Next, you know, these these bright lights, bright white lights get get turned on, and it was, it was, it was the, the 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 fellow researchers were, were having a look through the bush and checking some things out with with their torches, and Dean and I felt like vampires in the darkness. Look, because because we're so so used to not using white light, just walk around in the dark or with red light, it was a very intrusive feeling uh, to to all of a sudden have this white light come beaming through the bush at you. And again, look. We, we we were texting each other silently, um, talking about it, going, you know, saying we actually do feel like vampires in the bush. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 like again, like it's something that even I feel personally a lot more comfortable with no lights in the bush now, just because that that's what I'm used to now. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and you know, and the other thing is, um, even with the red light, I mean, that preserves your night vision. And I guess I hadn't thought about it from your perspective that once you're acclimated to no lights in the bush. A white light is probably going to be very uh, intrusive, which would which would also, you know, be for headlights. Correct, correct. It, it, it's even even uh, even when 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 uh, someone's at base camp, you using the using the white light, and you are say a hundred meters in the bush or down the trail, uh, just com- comfortably sitting there against a tree. Minding your own business, not using any light, just 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 panning around with with the thermal camera every now and again, 
and it's only base camp for whatever reason. You know, they're at base camp. It's all good. That, that's that's why everything's at base camp because we, we want to attract something to our base camp. Uh, and when, when when someone turns turns a white light on, and you can see you can see base camp from where from where you're positioned, uh, it, it stands out like 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 a major city on on, on Google Maps at night. You cannot miss base camp as soon as those white lights start flashing around. So yeah. I mean, in turn, on saying that, then if these beings are out there somewhere, they know exactly where base camp is, and they know exactly where the human beings are. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And, you know, I think they have um, a greater uh, visual range. You know, they can see into the infrared, which is, you know, and a lot of people don't realize it. We can, too, to a very, very limited extent. You can see, yes. you know, if somebody has an infrared light, you can you can just barely see that red. But yes. I think, um, you know, everything from raccoons to, I don't know if you have raccoons out there, but I'm sure a lot of the wildlife that you have can see the infrared just fine. And and we know these creatures can. So um, <clears throat> I would imagine that a white light would be just absolutely would stick out like a sore thumb. Correct. I mean, we 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 actually give people very similar to very similar advice to what you guys give people over there when they 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 have these beings coming up up to their property. If if you feel threatened or it's it's a negative situation that you you don't want these beings coming up to your property up to your house. Like you guys, we, we tell people as well to to put up infrared cameras, to, to, to put up sensor lights, so it lights up the area. Or, again, with the infrared, as you said, they, they can see the infrared, which has been proven time and time again. I, I know that there are a lot of people that can't wrap their heads around that, but I think the evidence speaks for itself here and over there where you guys are that these beings can see infrared. So, again, we actually do tell a lot of people that if you don't want these beings around, the, around your house, Put up game cams, put up sensor lights, and you'll have no issues. And once they've done that, again, like you guys, it's proven time and time again that these beings will stay away. Or when people do find a trackway where these beings are coming up to their house, they'll put game cams on this known trail. All of a sudden, it goes quiet for a week or two, and they go back out to, to check their game cams, and they can see that that the the, the trail that these beings have created is starting to grow over. There's leaf litter over it and that kind of thing. And then they, they go over to a certain, say, 10, 20 metres to the left or the right, and there's a new trail that's been made. So they are they are actively avoiding these cameras and these types of lights. Do you guys get people that contact you for help with uh, dealing with the creatures? We do, mate, we do. So people contact us through the website via email or they contact us through the Facebook page as well. Um, on a on a on a numbers numbers reference, be it people just contact uh, contacting us for help, or contacting us just to let us know what happened or what they experienced or what they saw through Facebook Messenger, we'll get say between five and ten messages a week through through again through Facebook Messenger. Uh, emails uh, we'll get up to three or four a day from people. Again, be it just with an encounter, or can you please help, or can you? Um, do you have any, uh, any 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 advice of what what I can do to, to keep keep these beings away from my property because I, I fear for my family or my kids? What is the culture like in Australia as far as the uh, general public acceptance of of yowies? 
that's where we are a little bit jealous of you guys. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's getting better. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have pubs and bars and uh, corner stores like yourselves that are that are, that are named after uh, Sasquatch and Boogerman and Cornman and that kind of stuff. Uh, we 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 do have some specific places that that are named after, but more more in a, in a joking manner. Uh, but I mean, the word the word is is starting to get out there. More people are starting to feel more a lot more comfortable to come forward with their with their experiences. It is still more of a joke topic. Uh, a lot a lot less people take it seriously. Uh, again, it it is getting better. I think since we had um, a footprint that was found by some friends of mine um, out west of the Gold Coast, where you you may have seen it, it was a women's running shoe that they they, they placed inside this this this. It looked like, it looks like a right foot. Uh, so they they placed that in there. They sent it to me. I involved Dean, and that made the the the, the front page of 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 the the local newspaper here. And since that happened, it seemed to, I guess, help people because it's on the front page, front page of the Gold Coast Bulletin. And we also we we did have a very large influx of people, not only talking about it or or discussing it, or a friend of a friend of a friend of mine saw something, but people actually contacting us. Like it, it did spike quite high, uh, with again with, with people feeling a lot more comfortable to come forward with whatever experience they've encountered or seen or found them uh, as, as such. Again, it's not as comfortable as what you guys have over there. It is more of a joke topic. I, I, I do know that you guys have, um, you know, people in the science background who are a lot more open to the subject. Uh, unfortunately, over here, people people with, with, with those sort of credentials will not speak out loud or out publicly uh, because they will still be ridiculed very quickly over it. Yeah, we get some of that. I actually get quite a bit of that over here as well. But, um, yeah, you're right. I, I live in Oregon. Will's, Will lives in California, and he's from Washington State. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it. But it's uh, here in Oregon, just everywhere you go, you'll see uh, – Will, you've seen them, those eight, nine-foot carved statues, you know, where somebody's carved – uh, Bigfoot oh, yeah. there's, with a chainsaw. There's quite a few places going up the west coast here. Yeah. And so I'm going to, um, you know, when we get off the show, Gary, I'm going to send you a picture of some, <laughs> some of those. Uh, it's a real popular thing. You can get them like here in town. Right. So, but, um, yeah. Um, so it sounds like it's kind of a, I would say maybe slowly a slow acceptance, and here's why. And uh, there's just my, you know, if I can speculate for a, a bit, the reason it's being accepted, you know, slowly is because the creatures do exist. So eventually, truth has a way of kind of rising to the top, and you can't ignore it. Um. So how long? Just out of curiosity, how long have you guys uh, been doing? the Australian Yowie research and how long have you had an interest in the topic? Ross, Dean has been involved with this subject for, I think it's roughly 30 years. I'm pretty sure he had his 
first experienced that. I think he was 26 or 27 years old. Uh, so so that would make, yeah, probably 25 years ago that he he, he started Australian Yellow Research, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, he's he has a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and a lot of field experience, that kind of thing as well. Uh, so over here, he, he, he is the man to look up to. Um, and ask and ask the tough questions. Where if, if I don't know something, I'll, I'll go straight to Dan and ask him. Because he, he, nine times out of ten, um, he, he has the knowledge and experience to uh, give those answers. Uh, for myself, I've been interested in subject for I would say roughly about seven to eight years. I've always been interested in the, the these off-topic situations, you know, beat, yeah, or ETs or ghosts and that kind of stuff. I've always, always had an interest in, in, in that side of life. Uh, but yeah, roughly about seven years ago, I decided to actually actively, with a with a good friend of mine, actually actually go out and look for these beings. So we actually did go to an area that is known for its sightings and encounters. Uh, a, 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 a an 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 elderly lady um, in this this rural rural area, uh, a small town called Woodenbong. She actually watched the watched one of these beings pick up her small little, I think it was a Maltese little little white fluffy rat dog she actually watches being picked up and it, it walked off the property with her dog so that that area does have a lot of encounters and sightings so myself and wade decided to go out to this area and you know first night uh we had a bipedal walking through the bush and we moved down the road a little bit further and as soon as we got out of the car which th- this is a situation where i learned very quickly never to turn off the audio recording device I thought because we're getting back in the car, I'll, I'll pause it. And when we get back out, I'll unpause the recording, which now I've learned to just let it go the whole time. As soon as we got out, we got screamed at from roughly 10 metres away. Uh, there's big, a big wall of lantana, uh, which, which, which is a very – it's like a uh, – it's it's a bush that is very spiky and prickly. Um, it doesn't really have any irritants as in like it, it won't give you a rash. It'll just grab your clothes and grab your skin and – gives you some nice cuts and abrasions. So this being was behind that that wall antenna, had roughly about 10 metres away, we got screamed at. And then from the north and the northwest, we could hear another two coming in, vocalising as they got closer and closer. And, yeah, ever since that night, I haven't stopped. Uh, myself and Wade kept going out um, as complete useless rookies that had no idea what was going on with white light, flashing white light, white light through the bush. We would hear something move. We flash white light at it, and I luckily got the chance to go out with Dean one night. I, I kept pestering him, sending him messages, and you know, if, asking you if, if you need a hand with anything, give me a yell. I'm, I'm happy to help. And one night he um, got sick of me complaining to him and nagging him and pulling on the back of his shorts about it, and he let me come out one night. Um, and that was that was that was an area that we actually did get activity where. I was, I was sitting, I was sitting up, 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 up at a bit of a ridge line. Dean could see me, and he was walking through. He was, he was walking through a creek down below, and he, he looked up, looked up from the creek through the trees and saw me sitting up on top of this, this, this ridge. Yep, there's Gary. Okay, cool. He kept walking through the creek and he looked up again and saw what he thought was myself, a little bit higher up on the ridge, walking down to, to my location. So he thought that I've gone for a walk. He's walked back out of the creek from down below, looked up up the trail. I'm still sitting up on this ridge, and he came running towards me. What's 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 he up to? And he he ran straight past me. 
So it turns out that he actually watched a being walking down to my location to check me out. The the grass was roughly a metre tall grass, so he was actually skulking down through this grass at roughly at four o'clock in the afternoon, so still plenty of daylight. Uh, and, yeah, he, he, he ran up there. It obviously saw him coming, so it, it took off. And since that night, I've been hooked. I've been with Dean on many expeditions since. We, we try to get out very regularly. We're actually going out uh, tomorrow night for, for another night expedition in the same area that, that we've got the thermals, but down lower in, in a creek section where we did find the scat and X markers, that kind of thing. Uh, we, we, we have heard some strange vocalisations in there as well, like an old man, old man grumbling. And yeah, since then it's it's taken off. Um, I, I won't lie, it's 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 taken over a large large percentage percentage of my life, which I'm happy with. Uh, I think my wife gets a bit upset all, uh, sometimes because I'm always disappearing into the bush. Uh, but too bad. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's 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 been a roller coaster, ups and downs, and excitement and disappointment and confusion and back back to excitement and yeah, so it's 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 been a great roller coaster ride and. I have no, no, uh, no plans of getting off the roller coaster. No, I understand that entirely, and and uh, you guys are uh, people after our own hearts. We we totally, totally get it. If I was there in Australia, I'd be right there with you. Um, although I would not, you're not, not going to find me in a hand. But um, you say that now, mate. You got no choice. You can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got to ask you. Here, here in North America, we have um, not just the sightings and that sort of thing, and you know the footprints and all the other evidence for the creatures, but the North American, the Native Americans here have history that goes back, and they say these things were here when they got here. So there's, you know, the, we have lore, we got legend, we have artwork, and I'm I'm curious if you have Aboriginal lore and artwork that the Aboriginal people have talked about these things we and, do. and you know kind of in their culture and something that goes way back in history we do say so it is it is very 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 similar to the the native american tribes um even on the saying that with 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 different native american tribes that get spoken to about about this topic where some tribes will say that they're a peaceful peaceful race they're 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 our brothers we, we we trade with them we're friends with them and then you have another tribe that says stay away. They 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 take our women and children. Uh, we we actually do we actually do fight with the, with, with with these beings. So it it is a very very similar subject down here. I, I personally haven't seen too much artwork, uh, but there's been plenty written about them. And just like over there, uh, the, the the Aboriginals here do have their own specific names for these beings, depending on which part of the country. Uh, be it the the Dulagal, the 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 tall ones, you know, your, your six to ten foot tall beings, or the the Junjiri or the the brown jacks that, that you call them, which are the three to four foot tall cheeky ones that run around in groups and annoy people. Uh, but generally, most most Aboriginal tribes will have stories uh, that they will tell you where to go. Uh, they they will tell you that these beings are friendly, and then on the flip side. You will find a lot of Aboriginal cultures and tribes that will tell you, yes, they are in, in, in this particular ridge line or the, the, this valley, but don't go in there. They don't, they, they don't like humans. Stay out. So it, it is 
what we have here does very much mirror what you guys have over there, um, be it the size, be it the, the activity, uh, be it what these beings do, pe- uh, peeking in windows, uh, knocking on houses, uh, coming up to camps, throwing stones, throwing sticks. It, it, it very much does mirror the, the Aboriginal to the Native American cultures. Yeah, and that's exactly part of the reason we reached out to you guys is just that it's, I think it's important for people to realize it's the same creature. You know, what you have over there is what we have over here. The the behavior is, and it's fascinating, the behavior is identical. Uh, Will, you and I talked about this, and it's kind of like, you know, the behavior is going to be the same with, um, I don't think you have, um, I think you have very unique wildlife there, but if we were to compare the behavior of elk or deer or bears or mountain lions, here in North America to maybe Europe and Eastern Europe, it's going to be relatively the same. And the same thing with these creatures. I don't, you know, it's probably, they're probably not an animal per se. They're more of a hominid. But it's interesting how the behavior that you guys have there really mirrors what we have going on here. And it predates the arrival of the Europeans, both in Australia and here in America. Correct, correct. There's, there's even 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 sightings from, from when white men first came to Australia with, with Captain Cook and that kind of thing. There, there, there are a, not so much documented reports, but more spoken reports of even you know, these the, these these first adventurers that, that did have, have sightings themselves once coming to Australia. Um, a lot of them were written off to just hairy Aboriginals, uh, but when you actually go in, go in, into more of the, the the descriptive part of it, they certainly were not hairy Aboriginals. They, they were definitely these beings that they were, they were witnessing. Yeah, exactly. It's um, kind of the same thing over here. You know, the the they're called. You know, they have a lot of different names: uh, the Grassman, uh, Wood Boogers, and it wasn't until I mean, gosh. 1958 when the term Bigfoot you know was was coined and then of course the uh, Pacific Northwest coastal tribes called them Sasquatch it's actually a little bit different pronunciation but you know same same idea Correct. yeah it, was, it, was, it wasn't it was the 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 white men of the time couldn't quite pronounce how that native tribe would 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 uh, would, would call these beings so that you could could change to Sasquatch it was like uh, yeah, nothing's so, changed there. The, being able yeah. to pronounce that, those names is oh, still a yeah. challenge. But yeah, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, uh, and just uh, something Sasquatchy. Oh, I can't even think what it was, but yeah, no, yeah, I'll see what you're saying. Yeah, the, you might find this interesting. Here in Oregon, I looked into the history of these things, and I found that in one area of Oregon, you know, going way, way back. I mean, you know, 150 years, they were actually called kangaroos <laughs> they looked nothing like kangaroos but i'm assuming it had to do with the way they walked and with the way you know this the pioneers or the settlers saw them walking and that, for whatever reason that still doesn't, reason, make, sense. <laughs> still no, doesn't, doesn't. make sense no it doesn't 
<laughs> well, uh, if, I mean, if, 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 if we're going to go down that route, then yes, we still ride kangaroos to school. <laughs> there you go. Right. Oh, you don't? I thought you guys rode them to school and you oh, put boxing sorry, gloves sorry. on them. I, I, I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you do put boxing gloves on kangaroos, right? Uh, no, generally it's just bare knuckles, mate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, you, yes, yeah, you, you you are right. Yeah, it's uh, this. I think it's yeah. As as time progresses, as 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 more encounters do happen due to the the explosive population of of the human race, that you know that, that that's obviously obviously going to cause an effect. Have more more encounters and sightings to occur. But I think back back in these days, you know, a hundred years ago, when it was it was a mythical creature back then that someone would see and oh you know you've you, you've been drinking too much or you've been smoking too much, you're you're just seeing things, and as as, as time progressed and, and and more more sightings and encounters did start to happen, then people started to put more thought into it, and then these names you know corn man grass man booger, uh, Dulaga, uh, not Dulaga, but um Yowie even the term Yowie like same as what you said about Bigfoot being a collective term. That's the same as Yowie. Yowie is a collective term to just in- incorporate all the names in one, so people know what's going on. Uh, but yeah, I think yeah, as 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 time went on and more more sightings and encounters did happen, um, people actually began to talk about it, and they I guess they they stopped thinking it was kangaroos and actually gave it a proper description. And next thing you know, Patterson Gimlin footage came out. Well, let's face it. Now, you know, in Australia, you've got a lot of things there that nobody else has. You know, you got kangaroos, you got koalas, wallabies, and you've got the duck-billed platypus, which for the longest time was considered not a real creature, right? It was considered a hoax. Well, I, I guess you could say Australia is the island of Dr. Moreau in, in, in a way. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we do have some very strange creatures over here. Um, but I mean, saying that we we do have a lot of introduced species as well. Like even even going back to deer and that kind of thing, there there is a a, a healthy deer population in Australia, not to the not to the numbers of what what you guys would have. Um, but where 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 I live up 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 in the, the the Gold Coast hinterland, up in the mountains, there is a deer population around here. Um, and even even what you were saying about koalas, there there is a lot a lot of misrepresentation with koalas and yowies as well, where Someone who who isn't quite familiar with the mating call um, of a koala, they, they they will report to us that that they, they have uh, vocalizations of a possible yowie on their property. And once we listen to the footage, we can quite easily determine. No, I'm sorry, that that actually is a koala doing a mating call. Which I'm, I'm not sure if, if you've heard a koala doing a mating call. It is. I have not. <laughs> you, you you should probably Google that. It's uh, well, I jump on YouTube and have a look at that. It'll, it'll it'll for for a for for an animal of that size, the 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 noise and the power that comes out of that that little bugger, uh, you you'd be very surprised. It's it it it's a very deep guttural grunt. Uh, then gets very loud, ju- just like what Bigfoot yowies would do. Uh, but once once you hear it, it, it it's a very very distinctive uh, call. So. Once people send that to us, uh, we can quite quickly say, yeah, unfortunately, that is just a koala. Oh, that's 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 great to hear. That's interesting. Um, what are your um, what are some of the uh, colors of the creature 
that are reported that people have seen. We're here we get uh, predominantly black for now. This is just a generalization, but the black hair would be more for the uh, younger juveniles, although sometimes the the bigger ones have it. And then generally speaking, as they get larger, they get kind of a auburn or a rust color. And then some of them are even white or gray. Uh, again, going back to correlating between you and us, us and you, et cetera, um, it's exactly the same. Uh, we, we have reports come in of, of, of the blacks, the chocolates, the, the auburns, the grays, the whites. Uh, we had in at the end of 2018 on the backside of my mountain, the truck driver, um, roughly about 10 o'clock in the morning, um, we call him Big Red. So we, we believe Big Red, uh, which obviously is like an auburn color, is the alpha uh, male of the troop that, that we have in, in, in uh, Springbrook where we've got the thermals. So he, he he's a an auburn red. And then we had, had uh, another contactee a little bit further west who they had been tapping on the windows and they went out one morning at 4, 4.30 in the morning to have a coffee while her husband went to work and they saw this being run off across the back of the property into the into the nearby bush and she described it as a white to grey colour. Uh, we, we, we do try to get as much information and description as we can from these people to try and correlate if the grey the gray or white beings are an older an older uh, creature. However, we do get some people that say, no, no, I did, did this being is white, but it did look very young in the face. Um, but again, like we obviously don't know they're aging, so they might age a, bit, a little bit slower than us. So in us white, it might have still been 60 years old. Um, but yeah, like it's it's the, 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 the colour side of it is very, very much the same as what you guys have over there. What about the... Um can you talk a little bit about the ones in Western Australia that are not, they're not a Yowie, they're something a little bit different. They're, you know, the ones that are about a meter tall. Yeah, we actually have those down in New South Wales. So they're, they're not just in Australia. Uh, sorry, they're not just in Western Australia. Um, they are in, they are here on the East Coast as well. Uh, and from, from what the Aboriginal reports are, is that, yeah, the, so they, they, they are the, the Junjidi, uh, which is the Aboriginal name. Or I guess the, the the common man's name is the, the the brown jacks. So they are roughly about three to four foot tall, uh, very mischievous. They they do get around in groups, uh, whereas as opposed to the 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 general the 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 doolagals or the quinkin, uh, being the, the the taller bigger beings uh, who generally get around in you know, one two and three. Uh, these little guys will get around in I guess you can say small little packs, and we have had reports where these little packs will come in and steal from, from campsites and throw things. And people report, like, if, 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 if they're throwing stones and that kind of sticks, whatever, people report that the stones and sticks come from all different directions from the camp. Uh, it doesn't seem to be any more aggressive than, than that. It's, it's like more that they're just playing, uh, which, again, comes back to our, our conception of, of the situation um, with – with, with with the small beings or the, or, or the larger ones where these beings are playing, but because it's sticks and stones getting thrown, we're being humans taken as a negative manner as opposed to not understanding where these beings are coming from. Uh, but, yeah, again, like it, it comes back to uh, the, the Aboriginals that they do, they do have many, many accounts of these brown jacks 
coming in. Like they're they're they're, they're described very much like the Yowies, the the, the dual girl and the 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 uh, the, the, the Quinkin. Um, exactly the same for the, for the most part, just only three to four foot tall, and again traveling, I guess so. Yeah, small packs. Do you think it's possible that maybe these uh, brown jacks, as you call them, is it is there a possibility that they might actually be uh, juvenile or very very young uh, yowies? They just haven't grown up yet, and they're acting like kids. Or do you think they look entirely different and they would they would just be a different creature well according to the aboriginals they are an, an entirely different species uh well i guess i should say entirely but they, they are they are a different species uh compared to the larger beings uh so some 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 aboriginals do have reports where they they will they will note the same brown jack so dip, Different, different <clears throat> facial features or different, you know, slightly different shades of hair, uh, blacks to chocolates, that kind of thing. They, they, they do note that these beings have been around for, around their property for, for many years. Uh, so, I mean, I'm saying that, going with witness reports and what the originals say themselves, uh, we very much do believe they are a separate species to, to the larger beings. You there, Tom? Uh oh, lost him. I think we may have. Let me see. <laughs> yes. Oh, there he I is. I was okay. I was talking about. Yeah. Okay. In Indonesia, you've got the uh, the big ones. Remember, we were interviewing a gentleman about a year ago, and they had the two distinct uh, varieties of a well, two two totally different creatures. Well, that was Dolly. Big ones just a ones. couple of months ago, actually. Is that the yeah. red pendek? That's one of them, but he had a name for the larger one. Oh, also that, that that's the smaller one. Right, right. Uh, okay. So I just can't help but wondering if, you know, that maybe there's a similar situation going on there in uh, Australia. If maybe there's some, you know, they're related, kind of the same creature. You know, the little ones being related to the little ones in uh, Indonesia, et cetera. Well, you know, I, I mentioned, I remember before my friends at the Klamath Reservation, they called little ones here the Guganas. So you had you had the smaller ones and of course the larger creatures. You know that's yes that's right and so it just makes me wonder a little bit about when we find some of the smaller footprints. What are we finding? Are we finding juvenile Sasquatch or maybe these Guganas? Don't know. Personally, for myself, I, I haven't found any. Um groups of small small tracks of, of only, I think, I think the smallest track of them would be a seven eight inch um, but they they are usually alongside you know your 14 15 16 inch prints uh, I, I personally haven't had any experiences with brown jacks in our area uh, i think they are, are mostly further south and toward new south wales victoria from from what from what the, the the reports that do come into us um it seems that we in Queensland, only really have, have have the larger species. Yeah, very interesting. Well, listen, we're just about out of time. Um, I'm hoping we get a chance to chat with you again in the future, and uh, we'd like, hopefully, we get a chance to talk to uh, Buck and Dean if they're interested and if they're available. And, yeah, for uh, sure. I'll, 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 pa- I'll pass those on for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to tell you, Gary, it was 
absolutely interesting talking to you today and you had a lot of very good information um you know if this covid thing lifts we're gonna have to head out there to australia and, and visit you guys but you're not talking me into getting into a hammock <laughs> yeah we, we absolutely have to come and visit <laughs> well the, the 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 only problem is if if, if you decide not to uh not not to sleep in a hammock you're either going to stay up for the rest of the night or it's roughly it would be in your terms it'd be a four to five mile hike back to the cars <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so it's 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 either, either sleep sleep in a hammock or be uncomfortable yeah, okay good <laughs> you guys have mosquitoes out there um depends on the area you, um where where we are where, where, where we go, like higher up in the mountains, it usually doesn't get too bad. It's probably more so the leeches and uh, and and the ticks. Like Dean, Dean's a bit of a tick magnet. Um, every, every time we go, like oh, like he'll he'll go out fully covered, you know, long pants, long sleeve shirt. Um, I'll go out in shorts and a singlet, and we come back. I have no ticks. He takes his shirt off. He's got ten ticks. So good. <laughs> yeah. So for what? For, what, for, for I, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if it's if he if he if it's his cologne that he's wearing or if he has a very special scent of blood. But yeah. Um, but if not, like like you would have seen in the videos, like the leeches. Uh, that's that's probably your main concern as well. Um, keeping the leeches off you because they 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 come out in force. They do. Um, oh, we got them here too. Oh mate, they they they're great fun. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Usually the, the the mosquitoes aren't too much of an issue when when we are we are higher up. If they, they usually hang down toward the creeks a bit more. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen, Gary, I really appreciate it. And um, again, I got to tell everybody out there, I like the way you sign your your emails. Uh, you go fast <laughs> for corners. <laughs> Gary, be sure to keep in touch with us. I will, mate, for sure, definitely. All right, let's. We got to wrap this sec segment up, everyone. Uh, Gary, again, thank you, man. Uh, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom and I are going to. Uh, we're going to do the regular Q&A, but we're going to kind of mix it in like we've been doing with uh, information from Green's books and elsewhere. Um, one of the things we were looking at was um, how similar behaviors are over time. And things that are in John Green's books, for example, from the past, um, compared to things today. So I'll start with this one. Um, there's... a uh, we talked about things like, you know, people ask about certain particulars who enter questions like, you know, does Sasquatch hide their footprints to intentionally? And here's a pretty good example I guess you could use uh, about that. In the Bellacoola Valley in 1958, December, and that's in Canada, uh, two men saw a creature about 80 feet away, and apparently at first it wasn't aware of their, their presence. But when it turned or returned their gaze, it ran away carefully leaping over patches of snow leaving only one heel print now, i find that kind of interesting uh, you know what what's the point of hopping over these patches of snow i mean if you're just uh, some dumb creature you're just gonna walk away and and not think about doing things like that what are your thoughts tom 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it really does look like they are aware. And we've talked about this uh, a long time ago. Uh, Adam posed the question that do the creatures, or would they be aware if they were to watch us tracking them, would they know what we're doing? And I think the answer is a definitive, absolutely yes. They know tracking when they see it, and they know hunting when they see it. Apparently so. I mean, and this is, you know, we have to have an example like that as a, a witness or witnesses, multiple witnesses seeing this happen. Um, you know, it wasn't just jumping. It was actually hopping over specific places where it would have left markings. So, um, and there are also cases we've talked about, you know, hunters uh, losing deer. Remember, we talked about Buddy Fight, um, the ex-biker and uh, guitar right. player for Johnny Mathis. And he told, he told me the story of him and another guy poaching deer uh, in, in Clark County, Washington, uh, east of Yakold. And they were up there. They shot a deer on the switchback above them. When they drove around the road up to it, the deer was gone. And they, they saw drag marks in the snow, so they followed them for a bit until they came on the creature that was dragging the deer away in the snow. And they decided to let the creature have the deer. So, you know, you look for other um, similar behaviors elsewhere. Well, here's one um, near Bend, Washington, in the fall of 1957. And they talk about, um, well, I'll, I'll just read it. It says, Lee Trippett interviewed Gary Jonas, then of Eugene, who told him that while he and Jim Newell were hunting in the Winoga Butte, uh, southwest of Bend, they saw a giant human-like creature at least nine feet tall come out of the brush and pick up a deer he had shot. I talked to Mr. Jonas on the phone in 1967. He said that the deer had entered the clearing acting as if it were afraid of something coming behind it uh, and never noticed him at all. After he shot it, he waited to be sure it was dead, speaking of the deer. Um, when suddenly the giant emerged from the same place as the deer, gathered under one arm and ran off, making a strange whistling scream. Mr. Jonas emptied his thirty out six into its back, but it kept going. He saw no indication that he'd hit it, yet it was so close that he didn't see how he could have missed. Uh, he did not try to follow it. The creature was hair-covered, and he noticed particularly long hair hanging from its arms. Uh, several features there. Uh, when it, it came out of the deer, or came out of the clearing, the deer did, acting as if something was falling. It reminded me of the Hugh Brown story, you know, where they heard, heard the creature vocalizing coming up the hill, and then the deer pops out of the brush, runs right over next to deer with uh, uh, Hugh within arm's reach, uh, per, uh, apparently not even caring that Hugh was there. Um, and then there's another feature where the, the hunter shot it, or, or thinks he shot it, and apparently had little or no effect, at least apparently. Uh, and of course, we don't know for sure that he did hit it, but you know, in a, a situation like that, you might get excited not uh, not shoot where you're thinking you're shooting. And then also the the whistling and uh, and the long hair from the arms. So there's there's a number of features there that we heard in other accounts. But that isn't the first story of you know hunters saying they uh, they shot a deer and then the creature immediately came out, scooped it up, and took off with it. No, we had a witness about two years ago that was elk hunting <clears throat> up in Colorado, and an elk ran by right next to him, and and he had he he had reported he had this uneasy feeling, 
and he thought, oh, okay, well, that's what it was. And then he was like, hey, wait a second, no, that's not it. I'm here to, I'm here to hunt these things. But it's as if the elk was, it was totally unconcerned about his presence. And right. then, again, out of the tree line, this thing shows up. This this creature. Here's another one. Um, this is also in Oregon from 1959, October. Very similar to what happened with young Nick Goldhammer in 1989. Uh, now, the Goldhammers had moved to Yakult, Washington from Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and uh, were city people, had never been in the country. I think young Nick must have been, you know, 15 or so when they moved there. Uh, he was 16 at the time of the his encounter. These people had no no knowledge of Bigfoot whatsoever. But this, this is very similar, very similar to what happened, uh, what the creature did in his case. So, the story goes, two boys claimed to have seen an upright black hair-covered creature which came uphill after them and chased them along a ridge. They estimated its height at at least 12 feet, had an ape-like face, and was very heavily built and a little bow-legged. Now, the description, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a general description, so... Uh, you know, Nick never said, or any of the family members that saw that creature said that it was bow-legged. However, you know, that's a minor detail. Uh, they told Bob Titmus that it seemed to be herding them away rather than trying to catch them. Its arms were outspread, and he noticed very long hair on the forearms. So that's exactly, almost exactly what the creature did with young Nick. Nick ran, and they thought there was a person in the pasture. And, and if you looked at their property at the time, there was no one anywhere near close. I mean, uh, the nearest house would have been probably half a mile away. So he ran down to see who was on their property, what they were doing. He slipped on a branch that was in the ground of the grass, kind of a field grass there, and the noise of him falling alerted the creature to his presence. That's when it turned around. He said it kind of reared its head back, eyes got big like in surprise, then it leaned forward to look at him more carefully. Then it put its arms out at 45 degrees, palms facing him, and it came after him like it was herding him back to the house. Yeah, that was interesting. So it's, it's identical behavior as far as the outstretched arms. Um, so, you know, there's something in the behavior of the creatures. Is it kind of hard-coded in their DNA or whatever it is that, that creates our behavior? Um, it's, just, it's just kind of interesting. And also... The uh, bull legged, I just got to wondering, you know, these things don't have the same morphology or the same um, physiology in their in their entire body, but especially their legs that humans do. So you could see it as being, or I could potentially see how somebody would construe it as being bull legged because of the way they walk. It is so very different than the way a person walks. Yeah, there was another feature to that same story. Uh, Titmus went there and uh, searched the place about a week later, he said. And he found, and this was also exactly what we found at Yakult. Those were all, all uh, unused pastures, so there was a lot of you know hay-type grass and, and stuff growing there. Um, he found a bed about 12 feet in diameter in the meadow where the creature was first seen. And I mentioned before when we talk about Yakult that on one evening we were in the yard you know, listening to the things that would happen every night there and at one point it sounded like a bunch of horses running 
uh, down to the lower pasture from up near where the house was. And the next day we went down there and searched the area and there were actually several patches in that tall grass, just like what he describes here, that were anywhere from 10 to 15 feet in diameter. Uh, and I actually have pictures of them in the newest version of Haunted Valley. Um, so that was, you know, again, another parallel. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, we talked to multiple people just recently in Australia, and that, and that was important because we were establishing uh, not only a connection with uh, a community there that's very active in, you know, researching and, you know, investigating these things, but what they're finding, their behavior is identical. I mean, just mirror image of what we see here and now. What you're talking about here, again, historically and modern times, the behavior is identical. Yeah, there's a lot of consistencies. I mean, I, I didn't get a lot of examples, but and here's another one about the broken trees. Um, you know, I, I told told you that we, uh, or that when I, I talked to Bob Titmus, this was back in the 80s, and he actually showed me, uh, There's a, I'll, I'll read this and I'll, I'll talk about what he showed me. Okay, so I have three examples um, prior to what I found. This was near Olympia, Washington, 1965. There were two teenagers shot a creature or at a creature with a 22 rifle at close range. Uh, there were footprints found at the location, but what was interesting was there were two trees, two inches thick, had been snapped off six feet above the ground. Uh, about 1940 in Alaska, and this is just north of uh, Anchorage the story of Gilliak, and this was the, the story was uh, titled, um, oh geez, I think it was, you know, I'm not going to speculate. <laughs> it was the story, it was a Tex Cobb story, and he was a trapper uh, up in that part of the country back in those days. So uh, anyway, this was the Gilliak story, and the, the, uh, the Denny Indians took the, him and his partner to um, a location where the uh, creature's marking was and it was a four inch sapling 10 feet tall said it was twisted like a matchstick until the individual fibers um, had been separated uh, and also the next one was bluff creek november 1958 bob titmus and ed patrick uh, found perfect footprints cast uh, a number of them and they found three small trees oddly broken off and twisted back around themselves about six feet off the ground and when I went to visit Bob Titmus once, he actually had a bunch of these, you know, from this incident and others where they'd, he said he'd follow the tracks and he'd found these along the line of tracks. Didn't know why they were doing it, but um, he suspected they had just walked along and done it. And then, of course, uh, would have been, I think, 1991 that I found, you know, those Doug fir trees. And then later... In Northern California, the twisted trees. So they're the two types for certain. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and you've seen the trees too, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> lots. I've taken a lot of pictures of them, and you can tell it's uh, it's just all the other trees around are perfectly fine. This tree was perfectly fine, or trees, I should say, because I've seen multiple ones, and a lot of them. It's an area that I would. I would frequent, and so, I, for example, one of them, I uh, had been there a week earlier, everything was fine, I come back then exactly seven days later, and the tree is snapped over a little 
a little hemlock or something. So the top of it's still alive. It's still green. It just happened at some point within that week, within those seven days. Yeah, you can. It's not wind. You can tell when they're freshly done, and, and yeah, you can tell. I mean, depending on what the weather's been like in a location. Um, the ones I found, I mean, I've seen, you know, of course, you and I both grew up in the Northwest, so uh, we're uh, we're on the ancient side, so we've seen lots of weather breaks over our years, and uh, these things are nothing like weather breaks. No, they're not. Yeah, and I, I just want to mention that if you go into the woods, as you know, here, especially, especially here in the Northwest, but this would be true anywhere, uh, in springtime, You've had a whole winter of snows, winds, storms, and that sort of thing. And you you just have debris all over the place. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where the trees are in pristine condition. They're healthy. The trees adjacent to it are healthy. But this one's, you know, one's been snapped over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and in, on the western part of the country, that's typically what we see with these creatures are, are these kinds of markings. Well, I didn't go into too many. I, I made a list of things. I haven't um, had a lot of time yesterday to you know dig into. There's there was one other area, but I want to leave that one for um, next week. With our, our guest next week is going to be very interesting, uh, but it involves stuff around his mining camp and and there's some information here that kind of parallels uh, what he experienced so we'll save that one for next week yeah absolutely okay so i'm going to jump in i got a question here from one of our listeners this is jordan and he read an article how scientists have found reasons to believe that early hominids may have um, hibernated to survive long european winters um, and the evidence that they had was examining the bones. They found lesions in the bone similar to that of other animals who hibernate. Um, so what do you think? Uh, do we think that uh, in these times, <clears throat> and I'm going to say modern Sasquatch because that would, that would, you know, modern Sasquatch would be still going back millennia. Any ideas, any thoughts about whether they hibernate? I don't think so. Um, number one, there's, there are plenty of sightings throughout the winter months. They're, they're fewer because the creatures are, are in different areas. Um, everything I found when researching different areas in the wintertime is that you see the tracks coming through the snow and going up in elevation. So they're in those higher areas. Um, and, and there isn't any other. I mean, I, I know they, they're going on uh, guesswork, basically, with that information with bones because they don't know for sure. Uh, there isn't any evidence that any primate hibernates, um, especially in modern times. Right. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that about the winter. That was my first encounter. That's when I contacted you back in early 2018. I had it was definitely a winter encounter, cutting you know getting Christmas trees, and that's when I had that first encounter. So and it was unnerving. Um. Yeah, back in the 80s, I, I had a work-study job with a guy that was, uh, he was former Navy, and um, he used to go hunting and, and do some other work. Um, I think he worked for the state up in some of those areas that I researched, and uh, we got talking one day at the job, and um, I can't remember how it came up, 
but the subject of Bigfoot came up, and he said that he actually encountered one uh, over in Skamania County, and he said it wasn't wasn't big and bulky like you know I was describing what I had seen. He said it had it was rather emaciated looking, uh, and I said, do you, "What do you think it was diseased?" Or he says, "Well, no, it just was really skinny." Uh, and then sometime later in the year, uh, the following summer, I believe it was, he actually had seen the same creature and, and that was based on the footprints and, and coloring and things like that. There was some distinctive, um, coloring. It wasn't all uniform color. It had some couple of different color patches on it. And, um, and I don't recall which, what it was. It was probably some graying or something, but, um, he knew it was the same creature and he said it had bulked up considerably. So, and I've heard that before from witnesses that have seen them in the winter that sometimes they uh, appear as if they've lost a great deal of weight. Yeah, and we had, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the account in Union Creek where the father and son saw a whole bunch of these things coming at them. And they looked uh, very lean, and, and it was in the middle of winter. Yeah, I think there was, they, they estimated 20 or more, and, and they did. They, they were very, very much on the lean side. So, uh, I, I think, and we do know they do stockpile things sometimes. So maybe the less experienced ones, uh, you know, don't don't put things away ahead of time, and you know, have issues maybe hunting in the winter time or just not as experienced. Yeah, and they were definitely looking to mitigate that hunger situation with the father. Apparently son. so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so here's a question, and this is from Fred, and I just want to make sure that we got Fred taken care of. He's one of our favorites. Uh, Fred Sieber is a school teacher in Okinawa. He's a retired master sergeant from the Marine Corps, and um, he wanted to know if um, he, he said he's going to have a friend sketch an eight-foot-tall Sasquatch and his understanding that eight's a good average, uh, so I think that is absolutely correct. But uh, he wanted to know what the measurements of the legs, torso, and arms, and the width should be. And I, that was when I kind of passed off to you. He's, he's doing this as a, he, he posed it as a math question. And before you answer that, I just want to give a math question that to our audience that I gave to him. And this is uh, if a sa- <clears throat> excuse me, if a sasquatch and a half broke a tree and a half in a day and a half, how many trees will seven Sasquatch break in six days? So if anybody knows that answer, they can shoot us an email, questions at creekdevil.com. <laughs> well, uh, Fred, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, uh, I think I'd mentioned or sent you a message that I'm going to send you uh, uh, some artwork. Um, there's an artist by the name of Palmer Murphy who is a very good artist, and he created... Uh, a piece of art that's my first encounter from 1974 where I'm standing in front of the creature and uh, his proportions are very close so um, you know based on myself at the time I think I was well I was 16 so I would have been about I was probably about 510 at the time uh, so he can and the creature is about eight feet high so uh, you know what Palmer did was very very accurate so uh and the appearance is pretty accurate too, so he can uh, do his artwork based on that. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the the creatures that you saw because you've described over and over again their absolute massive bulk. Uh, you know, their upper torso you said was huge, 
And we've also talked about the muscle and bone density, the bone density of these things being many times like you know, in the order of eight to, or excuse me, 10 to 12 times of what a human is. And that is the reason why when people shoot them, even with a fairly good caliber, like a 30-30 or 30-odd six, it is seemingly doesn't affect them. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm sure that has some effect. I suspect, you know, from having been in that situation and, and knowing what I went through, um, you'd have to be right, like as close as I was, at shoot one to be sure you're going to hit it because... And this goes back to my, you know, time in the army. You know, we spent a lot of time on ranges qualifying, uh, and in different, all sorts of conditions, you know, all different kinds of weather, lights, like, uh, conditions, things like that. Uh, your aim can be off considerably when you think you're on target. Um, you know, not accounting for those conditions and your agitated state of mind. So, um, in any cases where people had shot him or said they shot him. I'd have to really look, you know, at, at the circumstances to see, you know, if they actually did. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and it, it has to do, you know, especially if one of the creatures is moving and you have any distance, you know, it's just basic trigonometry. You're just a little bit off. Um, and I'm, I remember years ago, I never actually did this, but I remember reading about how to improve your accuracy. <clears throat> If you're, you know, like shooting, if you're wanting to shoot a, a deer that's running away, if you're running kind of game, um, people would take a tire <clears throat> and put a target in the middle of the tire. You want to make sure that the area behind is absolutely secure. There's nothing there, but you'd roll this tire down the hill, and that, and now that's your objective is to shoot the target with this bouncing, rolling, moving tire. <laughs> yep. I can tell you one thing that was a real eye-opener. Um, we took the guys out to the range for night fire one time. The first time I'd actually taken the platoon out, and uh, my platoon sergeant knew I was a squad leader, and he knew that uh, it was going to be an eye-opener for all the guys, so he wanted to make sure that they were aware of these various conditions and how it throws their aim off. And uh, it wasn't quite dark yet. It was still light enough where you could see the targets, at least up to... Uh, well, probably 100 meters away. And uh, so the guy, he, he had them all fire. Um, uh, we just we just let them do one magazine. So they fired one magazine downrange. And then we showed them. Um, I'm trying to think how that went. If we did it with tracers, I, I, I think we did. Um, and every one of them had missed the targets. They were shooting high. So when it's dark, you, your eye your eye focuses at a different angle. Or when it starts getting dark, the light conditions make a huge difference. So then when it got fully dark, you know, and the guys sort of got their bearings, we loaded up with all tracers and let them fire uh, another magazine or two. And uh, they had to keep adjusting their aim down. So it felt like you were shooting at the ground in front of you when actually you were you were more on target out, let's say, out to 50 to 100 meters. Well, that's kind of interesting that your your focus is different at night than in the daytime. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the fact that after dark, you know, the the, uh, the rods take over in your eyes and, and the cones sort of 
take a back seat. You know, your vision changes. So you have to know that, that difference and how to adjust to it. So, and, and the reason you know it is because you're trying to shoot and that's the kind of the measuring, um, I guess, or the baseline or whatever, the, the, the method of detecting that your eyes are off. But the point that I want to make is your eyes are off regardless at nighttime. So Correct. you're going to be seeing things slightly different. You see things differently. I mean, it seems, yeah, I mean, our, yeah, it seems redundant and obvious, but it's it's a good point. Well, a lot of people don't know until you're in a situation like that and you, you learn this. And that was his, my, my platoon sergeant's whole point of taking everybody to the range at night was to, to show them, you know, in their, in their own personal experience, what happens when the light changes. And, uh, you know, because you don't want to take the guys to combat and then have them burn up all their ammunition and not shoot anything, you know, shoot over an enemy's head. So you, you have to learn those things. Yeah, exactly. And, well, um... I mean, if you're talking about movement and, and then bone density and things like that, those are all factors that fit into that also. Yeah, they are. And we have had, uh, I wouldn't say just us alone, but there have been reports, and we've had them as well, people that have shot these things. And very likely, they actually hit it, and then the creature may have even reacted, but the reaction was more like a, a bee sting, and they just kept going. Yeah, when I when I lived in Vancouver, I interviewed a hunter one time, who uh, who saw this creature, and it was it was a bit of a distance away from him. I can't remember what the distance was anymore, but uh, but he had it in any scope, and he says he he believes he shot it in the right shoulder, and from the back, um, but the creature just kept going. It was it was moving at a pretty rapid pace away from him. Yeah. It, just, it really makes you wonder. I mean, it's like I, I just can't imagine. You know, I think of the velocity of just a thirty odd six. Um, I mean, it'll it'll penetrate, um, you know, a quarter inch steel plate at a hundred yards, no problem. Yeah, you know, I, I think back, you know, to the two creatures I stood in front of back in '74, and I, I had a twenty two, and there was no way in hell I would have tried shooting at something that big with a twenty two. I, I, it briefly ran through my mind later. Um, you know, I, I hunted with a 300 Savage, which is uh, basically a 308 round, and I had a 12 gauge, and, and I really couldn't uh, justify in my own mind, you know, that I would have shot at the creature with either one of those either, just because they weren't, I didn't think they were big enough caliber. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I hunted elk with a 300, so. Um, I just didn't, I just, in my mind, it just didn't work out that it would have been a good move to shoot at something that large with that rifle. Right. Yeah. Cause you, if, if you're wrong, you only, you only get one chance to make a mistake. Yeah. You wouldn't last long. <laughs> it's going to retaliate. <laughs> they, they'd paint the trees with you. <laughs> they, they really would. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, good, good point. Um, so I want to kind of go into this is just kind of a question we've had from uh, audience members. I don't have a real specific one in mind, but the difference between, for example, when somebody sees a baby Bigfoot, uh, infant, juvenile, 
Bigfoot. Now, I'm talking about a, a footprint that could be anywhere from four to maybe even as much as six or seven inches. The difference between that when somebody wants to argue, well, that was just a person. That was a young kid that made that footprint. Um, the dimensions, can you briefly touch on that? Why they're so different? Uh, and it's just, you know, it's can't confuse the two. Well, most often, at least on the types here on the West Coast, because they're, they're different variations. Um, with the ones here, you typically see they're flat. In other words, there's no arch. Um, the width is usually more than what a human width would be, and we've seen this with many. I have pictures of many, yes. many tracks like that that are juveniles. Um, a friend in Washington sent me uh, a casting he found of tracks that were only three inches long. Uh, you have to go into some of the um, the circumstances of the print, where the print was, uh, and this one was on the back side of a lake. On the other side of the lake, uh, it's fairly popular, but on the back side, it's there's no access. So you have to walk in there, and nobody goes back there because there's there's no access. Um, he went back there and he found adult Sasquatch tracks, 15 inches in length, that were just a very short distance away from these tiny tracks, and they're in the mud. Uh, no other footprints near these prints and, and the depth of the track is fairly substantial and you've seen the picture of that infant track Yes. and then of I'm course sure we're seeing the same thing in Arizona now uh, with Jason he's just in fact he just sent us pictures of two, uh, two very young juvenile creatures one four inches long one uh, six inches long very beautiful tracks uh, in this mud, Superb, yeah. in this mud along these uh, these rivers there. So, um, you know the location, you know the circumstance of the location. You know they're in places where there aren't people, where people would not walk. And in like the case with this three inch track and probably that four inch one, um, that would be, you know, in, in the human infant range, and they're not going to be out walking around bipedally by themselves in mud in a lake without any kind of well, assistance. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. And and the picture that I sent you, I think it was probably three, four weeks ago when uh, Kurt and I were up in the Cascades and we found that one that was five, maybe six inches long. And and again, you, know, you get the argument, well, that's just a person. It's like, no, look at that foot. It's like a duck foot almost. That it's was, very wide. That was a pretty good track. Yeah. And you found a number of those tracks. It wasn't just one. Well, there was, we found two of those and then in the whole area and when i say the area i'm talking about an uh area if, if you're to the circumference would be about two miles so mm -hmm. tracks that were ranging from 13 inches 14 and 16 inches all over the place and um but where this this baby track was it was an area that had been you know i had the burn piles it, it was a log meadow mm -hmm. and you know what i'm talking about when you have wood debris all over the place it's that sun bleached oh yeah to walk on that barefoot would be insane because it's like walking on glass that bleached wood that those bits all over the place are just uh really uh, yeah any, <laughs> there's no way anybody who lives in washington and oregon is going to know about those kinds of places and and a lot of times you're not going to see a nice straight line of tracks they're going to be all over the place especially with these creatures and like you say there uh there were other tracks there were adult tracks in the same vicinity there were and, and you see that especially with these real small 
juveniles. You'll see adults that aren't too far away. Well, what was interesting, and, and I may in the future at some point bring Kurt on and we'll just have a kind of a, a discussion. But part of what we were doing was putting recording devices up there. And in that same meadow. And you got audio. We, walk, we got audio. And now it's interesting. Before we got that audio, we were in the middle of the meadow. And we heard a scream. And then another one off in a different direction. And they were far enough away that you could you could definitely hear them, but they were, you know, they weren't like super loud. They didn't rattle your chest or anything. But I looked at Kurt and I mouth. I go, "Did you hear that?" And he's like, "Yes." Let's go back to the truck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was attaching it, and then so afterwards, I'm attaching the uh, recording device, you know, the digital audio recorder. And I have the I have it turned on, so you hear me. You, you hear, the mic's picking up, you know, the the tape and the mm-hmm. wire and everything. But what I didn't hear, because I was really fixated on getting this thing set up, was there. It recorded at least two screams. And then this is even more interesting: is we got the truck and we drove off, and it was twenty five seconds max after we drove off that a bird starts uh, screeching this kind of a warning sound okay very interesting and then something walked bipedally right up to where this recording device was because you hear the twigs snapping so it had been watching us the whole time we never saw a thing which is pretty typical it is Mm -hmm. yeah but very unnerving as well we were under observation and we had no clue so i don't know if it was maybe the juvenile or a different one you know we'll never know but um kind of interesting yeah i think that happens more often than people realize it really does and it goes back to what we've said time and again is just because you don't see them you're not you know if you go out to look for these things you're not looking for elk or deer or bear you're looking for something that knows you're there and knows how to hide and conceal themselves both visually and no indication you know you're not going to hear them walking around or anything usually and and in a way that kind of goes back to when we first started this discussion you know that uh that story from from green's book um of the two hunters who watched the creature and then when it noticed them uh watching it it took off, and then it purposely jumped over the patches of snow so it wouldn't leave footprints. Okay, and that's a real good point. Um, we get, from time to time, and I don't know how accurate these are, but you hear the stories about where the creature, uh, people see footprints, and then they just disappeared. And we even talked to the police chief, up in Washington, retired police chief, who saw something kind of similar, but actually I think what he saw was the footprints turned in. It's like the thing walked, started walking on its knees. Reggie, yeah. Yeah, for the purpose uh, of concealing its, its uh, well, assume concealing its footprints. Yeah, it's hard telling, man. They, they do some weird things sometimes. Uh, sometimes you won't find prints or a partial, one or two partials in places where there may uh, normally have been one had you had just been walking along and then there's other times um, you know one of the lines of tracks I found well my brother-in-law actually found the prints and I counted over a hundred when I started searching the area 
but they just sort of meandered around all over the place like it didn't really care. Um, I guess it depends on the mindset the creature has. And maybe it's experience. Yeah, exactly. I just, uh, I don't think that they walk along and then suddenly got beamed up by the UFO and that's why the footprints went away. It's kind of the same with scat. Um, I talked to Bob Titmus about this and I've seen it myself where uh, he said that apparently, and I have other witness accounts, you know, plenty of them where the creatures would defecate in water as if to hide the presence of the scat. Uh, other times where it was blatantly out, very obvious all over the place, but not in certain areas, almost as if it, they were using it. In other words, they were very cognizant of it uh, and its effects on wildlife. You know, some places they would hide it to hide their presence. Other times they would utilize it as if driving game into certain places. Well, so if they're doing that, that with scat, a, then they would be cognizant of footprints as well. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that puts a whole new spin on uh, water purification when you're out in the wilderness. <laughs> it does. Well, Titmus, you know, he said that he, he was following a line of tracks on one occasion and uh, where the creature had walked through uh, a creek and it had some a little width to it, the creek. And then apparently had stopped and defecated in the water and, uh, and then moved on. You know, another witness watched one out on, um, it was on a lake and it was out on a dock and the creature was defecating over the side of the dock into the water. And, uh, then there are other, there are plenty of other examples where people have actually, you know, seen this kind of thing. And I've, like I said, I've seen, uh, myself, you know, where they'd utilized it in open areas where they, where there should have been. Uh, where there were lots of deer and things like that, and in nothing in places where it probably should have been. And then I found it uh, concealed inside a tree line. I'm thinking about the fish. They're going, swim! (laughs) (laughs) Get out of here! (laughs) Not again! Uh, Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, they're killing the water. Um, And you ran into this also, you and I talked about this, where you've, you've, yeah, you and Jack had found 50 piles of scat in an area up in California mm-hmm. of these creatures. You know, it was obviously the creatures, and then they had gone inside the tree line. And that's what I was referring to. That. Actually, that was that trip with my brother-in-law, Bill. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, we. Well, Jack and I had found this. That's how I knew to look at this area. So when we went down there, my brother-in-law and I, I was showing him all this. And uh, it was a different year. So uh, for a number of years in a row, we would go to this one particular area. It was about, you know, 35, 40 square miles. And um, we would find this stuff in in late August. And um, so we went, it was all over the higher areas. So we went down to the valley to look along this uh, creek and there wasn't anything in the lower area. And I thought, well, that's really unusual. It's everywhere up there. You know, almost like they just didn't care. It was just any old place out in the open. But going down in the valley, there was nothing. So we decided to do a search along the creek. There was kind of a grassy area that was maybe 100, 200 feet wide along this creek and between the creek and the tree line, kind of a kind of a natural pasture area. So he went along the creek and I went along the tree line. And I got thinking to myself, you know, this is really strange. I mean, it just, it was just kind of bothering me, you know, so my mind was dwelling on it. And, um, I thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm something that large, 
how do I reconcile, you know, burning a lot of calories and not maybe having the chance to eat as often as I need to to sustain that rate of burn? And I thought, well, what do other large predators do? Big cats, lions, things like that. Well, they don't move around a whole bunch. Um, they, they'll pick a spot and like lions, they'll, they'll watch the game. They, they stay, they stay near, near the herds. And, uh, when the opportunity presents itself, then they, they will sneak up on their, their game and attempt to catch it. So, and a lot of times they're ambush predators. So I thought, well, what if the Sasquatch was an ambush predator? It would make sense. And for some reason I thought, well, they're, they're pooping a lot in the area. So they can't just stop that when they're down here, if they're down here doing this. So I thought, well, where could it be? So I went into the tree line, and within about 20 feet or so of the edge of the tree line, I started finding all these piles of scat. So to me, that reaffirmed my thinking that they were, they were concealing the scat in this area, using it in the other area to drive the game into this lower area, and then they would ambush them. Well, exactly. And the other interesting part of that story is the fact that this is on a road and game and these creatures, the road is a path path of least resistance. Everything is going to take that, you know, the game as well as the predators, the prey and, and take advantage of that. And it goes back to what John Green noted years ago, and that is 70 percent of all sightings are roadside. Yeah. Well, there, well, there were no roads in the in the valley by the creek. Uh, there went, or there was a road that went oh, okay. down to it, and then it stopped. So we we found this open area, and we just walked along that. And my brother-in-law didn't didn't see anything along the creek. It was along the tree line that I found all this stuff. Oh, okay, but the, originally there was like fifty piles. Oh, on the roads. They're on the, they're on the on roads. The roads. Yeah, yeah, everywhere up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right out in the open, very. And that's you know, a larger predator will do that to smaller predators. Basically, as a dominant thing, they'll go in and they'll defecate on top of the pile of the smaller predators scout, and that's a that's a dominance. That's saying, okay, it's my yeah. it's my area now. Yeah, and I, I've seen that with um, I don't know about the dominance thing, but I've seen on the roads is the same area where the that Kurt and I have searched for the Sasquatch is uh, bear scat. All, you know, just. I'm like, good lord, what are these things doing? Just walk along the road and having at it? I mean, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Some animals yeah. do that, but um, you know, these creatures—they're—they're they're a little. It's a little more purposeful what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, and but yeah, I did do some reading about predators, and 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 sometimes predators—they'll do that in areas to mark territory, uh, let other predators know, hey, you know, somebody's here. This is mine. And then a bigger predator will come in and they'll defecate all right on top or near where the first predator did their business. And that's a way of saying, hey, nope, you're, too, you're a little, this is my area now. It's very intentional thinking. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it doesn't take, you know, a super intelligent animal or just it's predatory behavior. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know, that's, that's interesting. And I think a lot of it, you know, with some of the animals, it's, it's an instinctual thing. It is, yeah. So, 
Another question has to do, and this goes back to the coloration. You know, you talked about the one gentleman who saw the, you know, he could identify it through the unique coloration. As a general, as a kind of a rule of thumb, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's just kind of a general rule that the younger ones tend to be the black hair, and the, as it get older, it gets more auburn red, and then they get real old, like us, they lose all their hair color, and it becomes gray. Not all the time. That's that's very seldom, actually, uh, in terms of the gray ones. Um, I, I looked back through Green's books, and, and to him, and I talked about the gray ones. Um, if you if you look at total numbers, let's say of sightings, um, the numbers of gray ones, gray or white, is actually pretty small. Um, so, and that was another question. I think we had did we talk about this last week with the uh, the Yeti and the Himalayas? Because there was a question about them all being white, and I want to I want to say that was one of Fred's questions too. Um, Fred Sieber. I don't recall that. No, there. Well, that was a misconception early on. That because of uh, um, where some of the first footprints were found in snowfields, Eric Shipton, for instance, his pictures got published of a track line going across this snowfield. So people just kind of, and I can't remember exactly where the idea came from, but this was, you know, I think around 1951, and people assumed that the creatures were white. Their hair color was white, and that's really not the case. Now, in other words, they. They don't live in the snow fields. They actually live in the alpine forest below the snow line. And then they have all the same color variations that the creatures here do. Well, that's very disappointing. I'm thinking about all the Christmas cartoons I watched as a kid. Right. Where they had <laughs> the abominable snowman and Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. <laughs> no, I did see, uh, I wouldn't call it white. It was kind of a dirty grayish white the second time I had a sighting. Um, this was south of Mount St. Helens. And I had, interestingly, of course, you know, I, I, I talked about, you know, running into uh, a family. Um, this is back in the mid-80s. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I and, and her kids were up playing in the snow. And, and I was, you know, of course, looking for prints and things. And uh, when I first started working that area. And we ran into another family up there. And I had my camera around my, my neck. And... Uh, the gentleman from that family walked over and he says, you're getting any good pictures. And I kind of grinned. I said, Oh, I hope so. And then <laughs> I, I told him what I was doing and he stopped and he stopped and he looked at me. And he says, you know, he says, I saw, I saw one of these things. And this was before I had my second sighting before I actually saw this gray creature. And he says about 17 years ago, me and some of my buddies were up here hunting elk and one night we were all standing around the fire talking and this thing comes walking right up to the edge of the firelight and just looked at us and he described it. It was just this, this nearly 10 foot tall, uh, grayish white Sasquatch massive. He said, looked at him for a little, all for a little bit. Then it turned around and walked away. Well, a year or so later, uh, we saw the same creature, not very far from that location. And then going back into some of John Green's material, uh, and probably not the same creature because we're talking probably 30 years prior to that time, uh, a similar creature was seen in the area. So there were, there were stories over time of this, uh, at least, you know, similar description of a creature, but not many of them in that area. Most of them were, you know, the cinnamon brown color or black. So really it has to do with pigmentation. <laughs> 
and it's probably the DNA. Uh, for the same reason, we have different hair colors. It might be something along the lines of like silverback gorillas. Not all of them become silverbacks. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It. I, I suspect um, it's something kind of along those lines. Getting back to Eric Shipton. Yeah, it would be interesting to see one of the silver ones, uh, just from from a distance. But you know, just for uh, <laughs> like we did, it was from a distance. <laughs> yeah, from a distance on the other side of a ravine, and you're in a vehicle. That's really the best way to see these. That's we, the Goldilocks. We, we had, view, we, had right? nice, we had a nice, we had a nice, you know, um, swift moving river between us. So that was kind of a nice barrier. Right, right. You get even a wave at it. <laughs> Um, so I want to get back to Eric Shipton for a moment because his tracks are very simian looking, the ones that he found in the Himalayas. Yeah. And the question I have, have there ever, has there ever been similar type of tracks that you've heard of here in North America? Not like his. And most often okay. the Eddie tracks were very Sasquatch like. So what he found was pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. And I've I've heard the story where somebody thought, well, it was actually an ancient bear. And, you know, you look at those tracks, I'm like, I have no idea what kind of a bear it would be. There's no claw marks. Well, and it just, when, when you, nothing like When you look at his line of prints, they're very characteristic of, of Sasquatch tracks here. They're in a very straight line. In other yes. words, you know, I don't care what kind of bear it is or how ancient it is. It's not going to walk bipedally. And leave tracks in a straight line. No bear does that. Right, and no people do that either. No, humans don't walk that way either. So you can make what you want of the prints and the pictures, but that's a that's a fact that uh, is not belonging to any bear. Well, and it would just kind of stand to reason that in different region of the world you may have. You know, again, you get variation of species. I, I think some of that bear stuff came from, I don't know if it was hair samples or, or what it was, but um, the belief was there was some discovery of some kind of, um, you know, ancient bear or something. And there may be, but it doesn't belong to these the evidence of these things that have been found there. Right, exactly. That's what I was thinking. It's like, hey, kudos to you. You found an ancient bear. I think that's very interesting. Um, it has no bearing on this subject, not, though. Not the Yeti. Or should we say not Yeti? <laughs> not Yeti. Oh, right. I know that was bad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of the other questions are, what are, people want to know what are the differences between the type ones and the type twos because they're almost identical but the type twos have almost like a canine well, uh, fang well they do have canines uh like gorillas it's you know think of it that way when you look at and i've got a gorilla skull sitting here in front of me they have very pronounced canines so that's really the difference the main difference now there's some other differences uh like when gary talked earlier in the previous segment about um in western australia they have you know the smaller types there that live in groups um 
there's um oh let me think i had to think a second here my phone rang so i had to shut it off um with the groupings now the type twos here seem to be seen um more often in groups that's that's what i've gotten from witnesses in the south where they typically live um oftentimes multiples uh, in witness situations whereas you know the types we have out here in the west coast the type ones that are more more or less the, the major types here uh, are seen you know one or maybe two together now the more there may be a larger number of them in the area but typically when they're seen that's what you see is one or two and that's what the original pioneers thought was they were solitary creatures because of those kinds of sightings yeah we now know that's that's far from the truth and the ones out here they have the blocky what what's usually termed as lincoln log type teeth big blocky uh no pronounced canines uh, more bipedal most of the time whereas in the uh, the type twos uh you get um as often on four uh, moving on all fours as, as two legs so there there's some that differences like that Oh, that's interesting. So it's almost like it's a little more of a recessive, slightly more older, ancient. Yeah, maybe. yeah. It seems like they have some, you know, throwback um, behavioral traits to them. Yeah. Well, maybe more primitive, or just a divergent development. You know, mm-hmm. where those things became prominent versus, and it's different terrain than what's on the west coast. So. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, it certainly is. Um, and I, you know, my neighbor, you know, we've talked to him. He had the uh, the sighting in in Oregon. You know, quite a quite a bit south of southeast of Bend. But when he heard the show, he had no idea these things had the potential to be bite or quadrupeds. Mm-hmm. Man, because he was in a whole different area. A couple of years later, they're all cutting and. Uh, about 200 yards down the road, he said, that is the ugliest elk I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and then he realized, you know what? It was one of these things. Well, it just, the proportions were just so strange for an elk. And the proportions are odd. You know, and it's, it goes back to Fred Sieber's cor- uh, first question. And uh, when you look at a Sasquatch, and it's very common, you know, the torso is long. Um, and in comparison, the legs are shorter. So it would kind of lend itself. In a lot of ways, like gorillas are kind of like that too. The only difference is these creatures are more adapted to bipedal walking, but they still have those attributes where they can they can move, let's say, like a gorilla would, you know, on, on all fours. And just because those proportions are, are more designed that direction than ours. Ours are more, uh, we're more designed for constant bipedal walking. You know, if we tried moving on all fours, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, exactly right. We can do it, but it's not a fun thing. No, no, it isn't. I mean, maybe as a kid, you're right. you could do that. But, Guitar age, um, you're not getting up. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And it makes me wonder, what's the impetus? What, what's the reason? Why would you get on all fours? Why We don't know the answer, but I'm just curious. Uh, we had a lady up, remember her? She up in... Um, an area that you knew up in Washington, mm-hmm. on the other side of the Columbia, 
where she saw one on all fours and then stood up and walked, and it was near apple orchards. Well, there was also deer nearby, so it was probably hunting when it was down low. And again, yeah. again, you go. I go back to my military training, you know, and you, when you always see it in movies, you know, if you've never been in the military, but you watch war movies, you know, when an enemy's nearby, what's the first thing everybody's told? Get down. Get down, right. Otherwise, you're a bullet stopper. You are. And, and the first thing, the first thought of that movement is to get out of sight. Um, you know, we were always taught to, as cavalry scouts, is when you're, when you're looking at a, a human looks at a certain perspective okay and they call it the strike zone if you play baseball you know from the shoulders down to your knees you know that's where our eyes look and our brains are, are geared to look for the human form so we pick that out cycle it's a psychological thing our brains are hardwired for that you know we will look for a human form so anything outside of that uh, outside of that range and to look different which is the point of camouflage and, and things like that uh, you want to make yourself look different. You want to be outside of that visual range that our brain naturally goes to uh, so that you're not seen. And the old saying when I was in, if you can be seen, you can be hit. If you can be hit, you can be killed. Um, you know, same true with these things. You know, they're going to be uh, out of sight of game. Now, they're probably not, maybe not consciously aware of that. But, you know, through trial and error hunting, I suppose you learn that if you... Uh, you know, get low, uh, the deer and what have you are less likely to see you until it's too late. Yeah, exactly right. Look how cats well, hunt. and remember, they do. Yes, you're they right. They get yeah. low and they yeah. move slowly. Yes, and they learn. They learn. They're very intelligent. Um, Wynn in, in Montana talked about the one that kind of, he said it was just creepy, uh, the way it crawled almost like a spider across the road. Yeah, we had a lady that was in New Mexico, saw the same thing. Her and her daughters were driving, and the, the creature moved the same way across the highway. So, yeah, I mean, that's they're probably hunting when they're doing something like that. And that goes, and that supports the whole thing of absolutely how muscular they would have to be to do that. Well, I mean, when you when you look at... I mean, good luck you you and I trying that, or anybody else for that matter. I, I go back. We need I need to find the link to that video we talked about, um, you know, with the chimps, the, the, and the comparisons between chimps and humans, and they discuss a lot of attributes, um, you know, things like muscle mass and all that, and, you know, the, the strength difference between a human and a chimp, and um, we should put that in the description because it's a, it's a really good one to watch. It's not a long video, 15, 20 minutes. But it's really informative, and and you could use that to compare, you know, with these creatures as well. Yeah, I don't know if there's any other. I don't even know if chimps do that kind of spider walking thing. I mean, maybe they. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you know they they have their own uh, modes of movement when they're hunting that may or may not be different. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, and it seems like they're more like a pack hunter. Uh, they're predominantly, uh, you know, they do eat meat, but they're predominantly vegetarians. But they, or the majority but they're finding, of the diet. they are finding more and more. In fact, there was even, we talked, I think, last week about uh, the recent witnessing of a group of chimps uh, hunting and killing a group of gorillas. And, and one of them was right. eaten and ate an infant. 
Yeah, yeah, they're they're vicious, uh, potentially vicious animals. Well, we're just about out of time, Tom. Anything further before we wrap this segment up? No, uh, I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners out there for your excellent questions and keep them coming. So if you've got a question for us, give us a roar at questions at creekdevil.com. And for our supporters that want to support us a little bit further, you can do that uh, through Patreon. Just go Patreon forward slash Creek Devil. No space between the Creek Devil, just all one word. And uh, thank you for for our audience members for your excellent questions. And Tom, didn't you make a recent change to that Patreon page? Uh, yeah, I did. I we have a entry level, uh, so uh, again, we we really feel that no contribution is too small if if uh, you can do it for as little as a dollar. And uh, so that's uh, yeah, we really appreciate all of our all of our supporters absolutely thanks again folks and uh you know yeah like tom said subscribe to the channel and you know if you're of the mind go to the patreon page um so that's it for this segment uh we're we're working on a super interesting guest we were going to have him this week but we're going to have he was sick so we're going to have to get him next week and you're going to really enjoy that show when we get it posted so having said that stay tuned for the next segment we're going to take a small break I Met the Abominable Snowman, a true story by Dr. George Moore, M.D., exclusively published in Sports Afield, May 1957, readers will enjoy this eyewitness novelistic account by the first American to meet face-to-face the mystery animal of the Himalayas, the Yeti. Even without Moore's chance meeting with the mysterious creatures of the Himalayas, the author of this account would have a remarkable story to tell. In October of 1952, Dr. Moore, his wife and daughter, arrived in Nepal. Dr. Moore, as Chief of the Public Health Division of the U.S. Operations Mission under the Foreign Operations Administration, was the public health advisor to the new Nepalese government that had thrown the doors of the land open to foreigners for the first time since 1816. Dr. Moore pioneered the health program of a country suddenly plummeted into the 20th century. His duties took him on extensive trips into towns and villages never before seen by white men. Moore became fascinated by the customs and habits of the Nepalese people, a people quick to win his lifelong admiration and respect. After his two-year tour of duty expired, Moore inactivated his commission in the Public Health Service and is at present director of the San Juan Basin Health Unit in Durango, Colorado. The story begins. Monsoon. Heavy gray clouds had been drifting northward from Calcutta for days that June in 1953. Already early rains, warning of what was to come, had soaked the red dust of the Himalayas. The air was clean and cool. Myriads of tiny blue, white, and yellow potentia had suddenly blanketed the green tundra above the timberline. It was curious how the colors deepened as we descended the slope. White grew highest, then yellow, mixed with white, and finally blue flowers dotted the landscape farther down. 
The rains weren't bad enough to travel in, but at least they were a welcome change from the snow about 17,000 feet. Gusenkun Pass had been the last high obstacle to Kathmandu on our return trip from the northern border of Nepal. In fact, the day before had seen us sloshing knee-deep in the soft, wet snow. Our coolies suffered the most. Half-naked and barefooted, they had struggled desperately carrying 80-pound packs on their backs. A Himalayan blizzard is no joke, even for the experienced native porters, when slippery rocks and precocious ledges must be climbed. Brooks, Dr. George K. Brooks, an entomologist on our staff and I were slowly making our way back to our homes in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, from a mission of mercy to the Sherpas of the northern country. The government had asked us to help in controlling an epidemic of typhus in Sherpaland, our name for the high Himalayan country close to the Tibet border. We had been the doctors assigned to the job and now were weary, but satisfied that the evil Rikitisia were licked for good. We raced to get home before the monsoon whipped us. Black skies, torrents of rain, and foggy, slippery trails on the sides of the mountains obviously held no love the Himalayan intruders such as we. It was at 11,000 feet. I remember that we had left Turkey Gyeong, the last village of the Grateful Sherpas. We're heading south now. The foothills of the Himalayas that surrounded Kathmandu 28 miles away were visible from the tops of the mountains. This was the era of the home of the gods, a holy place to the natives. Our footsteps followed the same path two or three thousand devout Hindus take on the annual pilgrimage to worship in the Himalayan heights. A scant two or three hundred returned from these journeys. The rest die along the way. On our journey up, smoke from countless funeral pyres were a reminder of the rigor and mystery of the area. The trail was less steep now, but slick with red mud. Mossy pines closed over us and thrust their sprawling roots across the way. Bloodthirsty leeches lurking under the rocks and awakened by our sounds crawled on our boots and up the coolies' dark nude limbs at every step. Only speed and more speed would enable us to leave this dismal, lonely, God-forsaken range of mountains. Brooks, as we called him, and I pushed as hard and as fast as we dared. Abrasive-soled boots and six-foot balancing poles cut from the timber enabled us to make excellent time on a ribbon of red mud. It was not long before we had left the coolies far behind. Not even their cries and shouts could be heard. The forest was deathly still. Fog banks, raw and cold, drifted through the tall pines and left their boughs dripping and slimy. Rounding a sharp turn in the trail, Brooks stopped abruptly. He leaned against a large rock to extract a leech that was at the point of disappearing over the edge of his boot. I stood there watching Brooks and fumbling for my pipe when an almost imperceptible movement in a clump of tall rhododendron caught my eye. Something had moved, I was sure. There it was again. This time a few leaves rustled more than mere chance could move. Brooks, sensing something was wrong, quickly forgot about his leech. Almost simultaneously, we both slipped our revolvers out of their holsters. On our right, the slope was dangerously steep. Behind us, the slope climbed upward. There was a large boulder by the side of the trail, and we eased over to it, glad for the protection from the rear that it afforded us. We waited. 
tense and expectant. The stillness was awesome. The fog and mist seemed to form weird shapes withering and twisting through the dense foliage. Suddenly from in front of us a raucous scream pierced the air. Another followed from the right of us. The ghostly quality of the mist and the unreality of the situation had a nightmarish tinge. God, Brooks whispered. What was that? My spine was tingling in high gear now. I gripped my thirty-eight Smith & Wesson more firmly. About twenty feet away, somewhat in front of our rock, was the clump of rhododendron where the first scream broke the stillness. This time, it seemed it though, it was behind us. Brooks, I managed to whisper, let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched, for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? Brooks, I managed to whisper, let's get on this rock and in a hurry. Brooks did not need a second invitation. In an instant, we scrambled on top of the massive boulder. From our new perch, we carefully searched in all directions for the next move. Our movements must have been closely watched, for a loud chattering immediately assailed us from the bushes in front. The angry chatter filled the raw air as new cries joined in the chorus from all sides. We were definitely surrounded. Brooks muttered, Oh my God, how many of them are there? And what are they? We got some idea of what was there when a hideous face thrust apart the wildly thrashing leaves and gaped at us. I shall not long forget the faces. Grayish skin, beetle-black eyebrows, a mouth that seemed to extend from ear to ear, and long yellowish teeth were nerve-shattering enough, but those eyes, beady, yellow eyes, that stared at us with obvious demonical cunning and anger, that face! Weird ideas were beginning to force their way into mind. Perhaps, but no, damn it, it has to be. This was the abominable snowman. No, I insisted to myself. There is no such creature as an abominable snowman or yeti. This face has to be an ape or a man or a demon or the snowman. A hand pushed through the leaves, then a quick movement and a shoulder. There before us appeared the semblance of a body. Sweat was visible on Brooke's face now as we crouched lower, hugging the rock for what it was worth. My hands looked white in the semi-darkness. As the creature emerged through the dark leaves, we strained to make out this form. I felt blind panic start through me. Then I stopped. Balls of fire, I thought. I've got to get a grip on myself. The creature was about five feet tall, half crouching on two thin hairy legs, leering at us in an undisguised fury. Claws or hands seemed dark, perhaps black, while his bedraggled hairy body was gray and thin. It shuffled along with a stoop the way a Neolithic caveman might have walked. Well-built and sinewy, it could prove to be the most formidable opponent. Teeth bared, it snarled like an animal. Two long fangs protruded from its upper lip. 
Suddenly, a sharp, flickering movement behind it caught our eyes. George, a tail, look there, Brooks cried. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind at once. Well, Brooks, I replied, this thing could be the abominable snowman, but it also can be an ape, a large logger ape, perhaps. Truthfully, I was more concerned with survival than identification. The band of animals was certainly aggressive, giving every indication that they meant to destroy us. But I couldn't help thinking about the creatures themselves. They didn't look like the common langur monkeys I had seen in India. At the same time, they had ape-like characteristics. Scientific possibilities crowded their way into my mind, even as I checked my revolver for the attack. Higher altitudes, fewer minerals in the water, could produce less hair. Lack of heavy timber in the high regions, which would make climbing ability relatively valueless, could produce an erect species. Mutations, the methods by which new species are created, have occurred and are constantly observable in laboratories. Variations within a single species over a period of time can produce animals greatly different from the parent strain. I had no time to share these thoughts with Brooks. The best I could mumble was an unsteady, Get ready. Other figures were now approaching from several directions. We could make out six or seven of them through the mist. One appeared to be carrying a baby around its neck. They seemed to mean business as they growled at each other. The one that had pushed through the foliage first was a leader. There was little question as to his authority as he led the attack. Brooks, I said hurriedly. Let's try firing over their heads to see if we can scare them. Don't hit them, for heaven's sake, or we may have them in a frenzy. A wounded animal, if they are animals, won't stop. And if they are demons, the Sherpas will never forgive us if we kill them. The Sherpas, superstitious as they are, would rather be killed than offend their gods, especially here. Okay, George, you say when, he replied softly. We sighted carefully through the fog and waited until the repulsive faces were about ten feet away. We squeezed the triggers almost together. The blast swirled in the fog in front of us. Splinters of wood and torn leaves fell through the foliage. The creatures stopped abruptly. A deathly fearsome silence pervaded the darkening air. Let's give them another one, Brooks, I shouted more confident now. The second volley resounded and we were definitely reassured. A third round this time convinced the demons. They turned, howling like wounded coyotes, and fled into the thicket. The excited chattering from the gray gloom told us, however, that they had not gone far. Brooks was reassured. As we reloaded, he asked jauntily, What's next, George? Shall we attack? I felt as Brooks felt. We needed to do something and do it fast. On second thought, however, caution was required. Slowly, I said, We'll wait it out. I believe until our coolies catch up. We wouldn't have a chance if we moved forward or even tried to make a break. I don't believe that they'll attack the whole party. Our problem now is just how far behind are the coolies. It's getting dark and these pirates won't miss the chance to eat us alive if I don't miss my gas. In another 20 minutes, we won't be able to see it all. We sank back on the rock and waited there in the twilight, nervous as cats caught up a tree. We listened for the sound of the coolies, and we listened for the change in the growls from the thicket that might indicate another attack. At this point, we knew the demons were discussing our future, 
and wondering how to play their cards. We tried to joke, but it was corny and useless. We were scared. The fog was unbearable. It penetrated our wet clothes and chilled our bodies. I shivered suddenly. The rock was uncomfortable. We squirmed continuously as rough edges dug into our muscles. Fog now, almost impenetrable, swirled slowly through the black foliage, throwing dark shadows here and there in wraith-like patterns. Grotesque forms appeared and gaped at us, only to disappear and leave our eyes red and tear-stained from the strain. Brooks pulled out a cigarette and lit it nervously. I knew he wasn't enjoying it. It couldn't be worth the effort. Perhaps it gave him something to do with his free hand. It was then that I discovered that I was unconsciously clicking the cylinder release on my revolver back and forth. Brooks gave me a dirty look and I stopped. The chattering and snarling from the thicket came only intermittently now. I tried to guess the leader's plan. Was he waiting for reinforcements? No, not likely. There couldn't be too many of them in the hills, and this, no doubt, was the entire pack. Planning to attack? This was more reasonable. No doubt they would hit us in one mad rush. Yes, a single massed attack at the time of their choosing. They would certainly wait until dark at any rate. Damn those coolies. Where were they? The lazy, unreliable boneheads. Have they bedded down for the night? No, they would want a village with all the comforts attached. They'll come. It was almost dark now. We kept straining to see through the gray mist. We were cold and wet. Our clothes clung to us. A black and yellow striped leech crawling up the rock fastened itself on Brooks' boot. The leech, unsure of its prey, stopped and listened. Weaving its upright body slowly in the air, I reached down and plucked it off the wet leather. Half-consciously, I rolled the worm in my fingers trying to crush it. It was too rubbery. I flung it into the trail in sudden disgust. The chattering around us was growing noticeably louder. Sudden loud and urgent growls pretended something new in the offing. Brooks, this is it. Shoot to kill this time and pray. I remember giving him one last look. We had met in Kathmandu only the year before. Already he had become a friend that I could know forever. I cocked the thirty-eight and waited. George, Brooks whispered excitedly. They've stopped talking. An uncanny and eerie silence pervaded the air. What was happening? I raised myself a bit higher on the rock. If they were crawling in for the attack, we had to make every shot count. In the bad light, a thirty-eight would not be a very effective weapon, and they wouldn't be afraid this time. But not a movement was discernible. Not a sound could be heard. We waited anxiously, sweat adding to the soddenness of our clothes. Damn it, George, where are they? Then a sound from the right, a cracking of a twig. They're coming down the trail, George, can you see them? I sighted the barrel of the thirty-eight at the leading figure in the mist. Almost now, a bit closer. Sahib? Sahib? A voice called in the darkness. I hesitated a moment and then came to a sudden realization. Brooks, Brooks, it's the coolies. Thank God we're okay now. Shiva, we're here. Shiva, on the rock. Come ahead. Beautiful, lovely Shiva. My Gurkha foreman, boss of the porters. One of the finest men I've ever known. Can ever hope to know. A loyal, dependable, quiet little man 
whose resource and strength lay deep within him. Not on the surface. A look from him had more effect on the Sherpas than a whiplash would have. For me, he was always there when I needed him. I needed him now. He was here. Sahib, you okay? We hear shots. We come up quick. God Almighty, we thank you, Brooks murmured. Yes, Shiva, we're okay now, I said. Let's go home. My staff and friends back in Kathmandu got quite a laugh when we described our experience on the ridge near Kusinkund. Several wanted to go back immediately, but the monsoon was on us and the torrents made mountain travel out of the question. When the rains had spent their fury, my medical duties took me twice again through the same region. I never saw the animals again. What was it that we saw? A mutant species that man has not yet categorized? Some kind of ape, large, erect, adapted to the high altitudes, made antisocial by its self-imposed isolation, jealous of any invasion of its realm? Perhaps. Or was it an entirely new species, an undiscovered animal, a leftover remnant of a prehistoric day, a creature clever enough to elude the curiosity of man, inhabiting an area still almost wholly unpenetrated by even the Sherpas, who seldom stray from the time-worn trails. From 1816 to 1951, the country of Nepal, for all intent and purpose, was closed to the outside world. Even today, only a handful of outsiders have explored but a tiny portion of this land. Yet it was this handful, more interested in climbing mountains than foraging for new species, that brought back tales and evidence of the mysterious creature they call the Yeti. One thing is certain. Whatever science will someday discover it to be, the creature humankind has called the abominable snowman is there in the Himalayan heights. I know. I met it there on the pilgrim trail from Tarkagiong. Welcome. This is a collection of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Bigfoot watches snowmobilers in Gifford Pinchot National Forest. This happened, oh, roughly 1995 or so. The guy wasn't a researcher, just an ardent dyed-in-the-wool snowmobiler. This fellow's name was Garcia, and he lived in Beaverton, Oregon, an area near Portland. Seems he and some of his buddies were up in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest doing what snowmobilers do, playing chase, trying to ditch or lose your chasers. Garcia was way out in front of his pursuers, trying to lose them. He turned up a spur road into an untouched snow area, thinking his buddies would miss where he turned. Well, this spur only went about 200 yards into an old landing site, with the road ending right at the timber's edge. Garcia's plan was to go up into the old unit, get out of sight of the main road, make a big swing through the old unit, then when his buddies passed, he planned to come down and get in behind them before they noticed. Wrong. It didn't work out that way. When he tore up into the unit and started to make his turn at the old landing, standing at the end of the road, just outside the timber, was a large Bigfoot, watching him. Garcia panicked, and in his fright he flopped his snowmobile. 
in his panicked state, between trying to right his ride and watch his observer, who was just standing watching this scared human floundering around in the snow, but must have been quite a sight to behold. Anyway, when the Bigfoot had seen enough, it just turned and walked back into the timber, much to Garcia's relief. He finally got his snowmobile back onto its bottom side down, and met up with his buddies and told them the story, which they checked out without Garcia. For his part, Garcia went back to the parking area, loaded up, went home and sold his outfit, and moved back to California. After I heard about this from a neighbor of Garcia's, I told Peter Byrne, and at Peter B.'s request, I tried to get in contact with Garcia, but he was long gone, and where in California he went wasn't known. This guy was scared half out of his skin. His neighbor was a landscape contractor I knew, and he told me about Garcia's adventure a year or two after it had happened. He said after Garcia got back, sold his outfit, and moved, he was never the same, and couldn't get out of the Northwest quick enough. Too bad more retransplant Californians don't have a similar experience. Maybe we could lose or slow down this rapid growth we're staggering under. LOL. Cliff Johnson, Oregon City. Oregon. Oli Jeep. Wednesday, January 18th, 2006. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. A 1970s Sasquatch story in Georgia by Wayne Ford, Oconee County, Georgia. Along the Flint River in the vicinity of the central Georgia city of Griffin is the location of one of Georgia's most publicized pieces of Sasquatch evidence. Along the Flint River in the vicinity of the central Georgia city of Griffin is the location of one of Georgia's most publicized pieces of Sasquatch evidence, the cast of a track with dermal ridges that supposedly indicate the existence of an unknown primate. That 17.5-inch print was cast in 1997 by a sheriff's deputy. But 20 years earlier, and within a few miles of this place, a young teenager had a fleeting but frightening encounter with an animal that was out of the realm of anything he had considered existed. Today, Jeff Scott is trying to come to terms with what he saw that day on the banks of the Flint River. He searches through the vast amount of Bigfoot information available on the Internet, and he returned to the location of his sighting. He is no longer embarrassed by the fact that he saw something that is cataloged by the general public as strange or fanciful. Jeff Scott's search for answers began in 2008, during the time of a Ballyhooed hoax in Georgia when two men, one a certified policeman, claimed on national TV that they had the body of a Bigfoot. It was a lie, but Scott says what he saw was real. Back in 2008, when they said they had a corpse of Bigfoot, you remember the hoax? Well, I went back down there, he said, in July during the telephone interview from his home in Griffin. Based on what he has learned by studying reports, Scott, now 49, 
said he is certain he has found strong evidence of the creatures still in that area. Scott's personal sightings go back more than three decades. Me and my cousin were down on a river bank, he recalled. I was 17 years old when it happened, and I wasn't even thinking about Bigfoot back in those days. My cousin was down on the bank fishing, and I said, Russell, come on up. Let's go around this bend and fish here for a while. He didn't go. Lord knows I went up around the river bend and throwed my poles out, and I was sitting there by myself. I wasn't talking, just being extremely quiet when I heard something way off in the distance across from me. The river is real narrow up there, too, he said. As he sat fishing, Scott said the sound that he heard far off in the forest sounded like limbs popping. I didn't pay no attention to it, or, and it started getting louder, and I thought it must be a cow or something coming down to the river to get some water. He got closer and closer, and a fear came over me. I started hearing big, huge limbs snapping and popping. It was frightening. I knew right off the bat there ain't nobody in the world can make that kind of noise. Scott said he was alarmed, and his sense of flight set in, but he sat still. He said the bushes and vines on the opposite side of the river were moving, and he knew that whatever he had heard was near the river. About that time, that thing came out. With its arms, it parted the vines, and I saw it walking. It was just humongous how big it was. Solid black hair and shiny. I never saw its face. I saw it from the side. I saw its legs plain as day, arms and head, everything from the side. If I hollered at it, it would have instinctively turned and looked at me, but I didn't do that. I was so scared, he said. He got up hollering and running back to Russell. I've never been so scared in my life, he said. Scott remembered he was in a near state of panic when he reached his cousin. I was shaking so bad. He tried to get me to my senses. I said, Man, we need to get the hell out of here, Scott said, adding. He saw the fear in my eyes. They left, and more than thirty years would pass before Scott had the desire to return to this location and stand where he had seen the creature. To this day, the only thing I regret about it is I was too scared to go back down there and see that devastation of limbs that thing had snapped. I know the footprints would have been there, he said. The sense of fear Scott experienced that day was profound. The fear overcame me that this thing could kill me, Mankind has never captured something like that. The fear in me was indescribable, he said. Today, Scott does not harbor that same fear that overcame him as a teenager. He doesn't believe these things, unknown creatures, will kill unnecessarily. He has gone to spots on the Flint River on a number of occasions to look and to listen. I'm trying not to carry a gun down there with me, but it's hard I carry bear spray and a knife, he said, adding, I've only been back to that same spot where I saw it one time. He and his cousin returned at his request. I found the spot again right off the bat after thirty-three years. When I stood at the exact spot, I saw that thing. I'm serious as a heart attack. 
I felt as if something was watching me. He said he turned to his cousin as they stood on the river bank. Russell, you didn't see what I saw standing here 33 years ago. It was the scariest thing in my life, he said, adding, he believes me because he saw the fear in my eyes that day. Scott said he talked about this sighting to only a few people. Nobody knows what I saw, only a handful of people, he said. When he read about the casting of the footprint, now called Elkins Creek cast, he knew it was close to where he had had his sighting, and to him it was a confirmation that what he saw still roams those forests in the Flint River. Twenty years later, they took castings of a footprint, he said, and more than thirty years later, he wants to understand what he saw. Wayne Ford is a journalist in Georgia who is researching the mystery. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Adams County, Idaho, October 2009, and several other incidences in the same county. 2009 was the third year that I have been able to spend the whole hunting season in the mountains. I retired in October 2007. I pulled my camp trailer up at the end of September and set it up for 36 days of camping, hunting, and sitting around the campfire enjoying the outdoors. I spent a lot of time camping and hunting by myself, everyone else is still working, and riding my ATV on the few old logging roads that are still open to four-wheelers. At 12.24 a.m. on the seventh night, something woke me up and I sat up in bed. A minute or so later, the rear end of my camp trailer started rocking back and forth. All the stabilizer jacks were down, and the trailer was solid, so whatever it was that was pushing on my trailer was very strong. The fully loaded trailer weighed in at more than 5,500 pounds, and whatever was moving it was not making any noise while it rocked. My first thought was a bear, a really big bear. I grabbed my shotgun and put a shell in and sat and waited for a few seconds. The trailer continued to rock back and forth, so I grabbed the air horn that was sitting on the table and gave it several blasts. That did not stop it, so I got the keys to my truck and pushed the panic button, setting the horn blaring. This stopped whatever it was, and all was quiet for five minutes. I sat there with the shotgun in my hands, listening for any sound. There was no sound, just total quiet. I had convinced myself that it was just a bear when this god-awful sound came from the ridge behind the trailer. It started off like a whistle, turning into a horse whinny, and then going into a very loud howl and finished off with a growl. All of these sounds were run together with no pause in between them. It lasted maybe ten, fifteen seconds, and then all went quiet. Damnedest sound I ever heard scared the hell out of me. I got dressed and sat there in the dark the rest of the night, shotgun in hand. I have never had anything affect me like that before. After it was completely daylight, I went out to look at the back side of the trailer and to see if there were any tracks on the ground. 
There were not any dents in the trailer or any tracks on the ground. There should have been tracks because the ground was kind of soft and out of habit I had raked all the pine needles and forest duff away from the trailer leaving just dirt and grass. This happened on October 5th, 2009 at 12.24 a.m. Need to mention here that a 240-pound friend drove into my camp while I was still outside checking for tracks and looking for any damage to my trailer. He wanted to know what I was doing, so I told him the events of the past eight hours. I also went back inside and had him push on the trailer to see if he could rock it back and forth. The best he could do was to give it a jolt by throwing a shoulder into it. He could not make it rock in the smooth motion that had occurred the night before. This particular event is what finally gave me the incentive to file a report, and largely because it is the first time I cannot affix any logical, rational explanation that would allow me to forget that it happened. There have been seven or so other odd happenings over the past 12 to 14 years that have taken place within a six-mile stretch of this road involving six people. Two of those events involved the friend I mentioned earlier, with both ending in him being chased off the mountain. Event 1. The first happened when he was walking out on an old skid road very late in the day, after an afternoon deer hunt. He said he could hear something keeping pace with him higher up on the hill, and it followed him for about a mile or so, making sounds that he had never heard before. Event number two. The second time was five to six years later, and in the summer he had just finished cutting up a truckload of firewood and was taking a breather before loading it when he heard the same sound as before. The sound was quite a ways off but kept getting closer, so this time he decided that he would sit tight and see exactly what it was. He had a three fifty seven Magnum revolver with him, and he just stood there waiting. After some time of listening to this sound, and it was getting closer and closer, he again let discretion be the better part of valor and jumped in his truck and left, leaving the wood he had just cut laying there on the ground. Event number three. An old hunting partner of his was chased back into his camp trailer early one morning by something that made threatening sounds toward him in the dark. He said he had never heard anything like that before, and he is also a lifelong hunter. Event 4. An associate that worked on one of our mills said his wife saw a tall, strange-looking thing walking towards their campsite while he was out hunting. It turned and went into the forest before she could get a really good look at the face, but she said it was very tall and was dark in color from head to foot and not carrying a rifle. Event 5. My son said he saw several barefoot human-looking tracks, but they were large and they were along the trail on the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend left the truck. Event 5. My son said he saw several footprints, human-looking ones, but large footprints along the trail of the top of the ridge that overlooked the area where my friend had left the truckload of firewood on the ground. Event 6. My brother and I were camped on a point just a few miles down the road from this year's incident back in 1997 or 98. 
It was just after dark, and we were sitting by the campfire when across the creek and way up the ridge we heard this god-awful scream-slash-howl. It was so loud that it felt like it shook my shirt sleeves. After a few minutes of trying to rationalize what could have made that sound and not coming up with anything, he left and went into his trailer for the night. I put the fire to bed, and then I went into my trailer for the night. No brave people here, either. Keep in mind that we have been lifelong hunters, and he was in his sixties then, and I was in my fifties. Event number seven. Two other occasions in previous years involved knocking or tapping on the side of my trailer. One happened at two o'clock in the morning, and a few years later it happened again at three o'clock in the morning. On both occasions, there were no other camps within a mile or two in either direction on this road. No other noise was heard other than the three or four wraps on the side of the trailer on both those occasions. My campsites are well off the Forest Service Road, with the exception of one that's about 150 yards from the road. My best guess about the chronology of these events... Well, the first one, my friend walking out the skid road was mm, 96 to 97. Uh, second one, my the mill employee's wife was around 96 to 98. The third one about my brother and me was 97 to 98. The one about my son was 98 to 99. The fifth one about friend's old hunting partner uh, was about 2000. The sixth event was my friend cutting wood. That was 2002. The seventh, knocking or rapping on my trailer at night at 2 o'clock and then again at 3 o'clock in the morning was 2005 and 2008. And the eighth, the one about the trailer rocking back and forth, that was 2009. Other incidences in the past 30 years of hunting in this area. One, very bad smell going out an old skid road before daylight. Nothing there when we're coming back out. This happened several times, and always in the same area of the skid road at the bottom of a draw where my brother and I heard the scream, howl, in 97 or 98. 2. Small rocks were thrown at my son while we were sitting on the edge of our favorite ridge. Two ridges past the end of the skid road mentioned above. 3. Animal and bird sounds going in another skid road, and totally quiet when coming back out. This happened more than just once on this skid road. Number four, a stick structure we found that was built off of FRS number 624 on the side road. Number five, my son rolled a large rock down into a large bowl, five to seven hundred yards wide, just before dark, making a lot of noise intending to scare out an elk, but instead... A very tall, solid, dark figure stepped out from behind a tree across the bowl from us, and after a few seconds, stepped back behind the tree again. My son rolled another rock, and the figure stepped out again for a few seconds. It then headed off away from the road as it was getting dark, walking on two legs. I watched this thing through a small pair of binoculars, and it was uniform in color top to bottom and was not carrying a rifle. This happened 50 to 55 miles away from the area mentioned for all the other happenings. That's the end of 
Story number three. Story number four. Albany County, near Laramie, Wyoming, 2001. Snowy Range Mountains. I definitely want to share this with you. This was in the Snowy Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, July of 2001 at about 9.30 a.m. Albany County, by the way. I've been on this website reading up on stories from all over the country that people have submitted of Bigfoot sightings that they've experienced. As I read them, I realize how shockingly close they are to what I saw. When I was a sophomore in high school, my mom was dating a man named Scott. He had a four-wheeler, and we'd always go camping. We went to the Snowy Range Mountain Range near Laramie, Wyoming, and camped up there one weekend. Scott and his buddies were dredging for gold, and my buddy Keith and I, along with my brother, were riding the four-wheeler around having a good time. I went out on a solo run, and that's when I experienced my sighting. Now, what you have to understand is the area we were in was pretty hard to get lost in. A huge, incredibly wide dirt road that led from our camp to a massive meadow that led down off the mountain. In the other direction, about 100 yards or so down the dirt road, was the creek in which the guys were dredging. The main road leads you everywhere. As I rode past the creek, I saw another dirt road leading into the woods. I figured I'd explore a little, so I went in there. As I followed the road, I could see a few deer skipping around. The area was full of trees, but plenty of sunlight got through, and the area was actually very pleasant. Eventually, the road narrowed and gradually disappeared, and the trees became closer together. The area off in that direction was clearly still rather unexplored, and I didn't feel like getting lost in there. As I turned the four-wheeler around, I was met with an incredible sight. A pretty small black bear had wandered out of the woods and walked right up to me. I braced myself for the worst, but instead, the poor guy was shaking. He came right up to me and pressed his body up against the four-wheeler. He didn't look like he was very old. I was genuinely worried about him when all of a sudden what I figured to be his mother charged out of the woods about twenty feet to my left. She ran right up to me and the young bear looked at me and quickly nudged the little bear away from me. She looked at me again and there was something about the look in her eyes. They wandered off and I sat there wondering what the heck just happened. I swear I'm not making this up. Why didn't the mother bear attack me? Why was the mother bear not acting defensive around her cub? And then I heard it. It was the most terrifying scream I've ever heard. It started low, like a really deep lion's roar. As it grew in intensity, it sounded like a lion mixed with a low bass sound that oscillated a bit. The louder it got, it became higher pitched until it sounded like a woman screaming in absolute terror. It continued for about six seconds or so. It sounded like a woman was being slaughtered out in those woods, but yet it had an inhuman shriek to it as well. I wasted no time in getting out of that area. I rode down the main road, and I passed the guys that were in the creek. I stopped and just looked at them. 
They were standing there looking around and asked me if I was messing around making that scream. I said I wasn't, and then we saw the two black bears crossing the creek a little ways down. You could tell they were in a hurry. The guy shrugged and went back to dredging. I rode down the main road and out into the clearing that led out of the mountain. I saw a group of cars heading in. They disappeared into the woods to presumably go make camp somewhere. Brave souls. I rode for a bit, then turned around to head back to camp. As I approached the tree line, I saw something move out of the corner of my eye. I looked to my right, toward the area of unexplored woods that I'd been in. There was an area of trees at the base of an incredibly steep peak, and the trees went up as far as the eye could see. I spotted a figure within those trees, and it was just standing there looking at me. All I could really make out was that it was black or dark brown, standing on two feet. It turned and began striding up the summit with almost no effort at all. You could actually hear the crashing of trees and shrubbery as it made its way up the mountain. I rode back to camp in a hurry. As I rode back, I could hear another scream far in the distance, almost as if something were answering the first scream I heard. Since it was our last day on the mountain, the guys had packed in their gear and we were leaving. I was admittedly relieved that we were getting out of there. Scott pulled me aside once I got back to camp and asked me if that I heard those screams. I told him I had, and then I told him about those bears and what I saw going up the mountain. He was skeptical, but told me that we shouldn't tell my mom or my little brother since they'd most likely just wig out. We took the four-wheeler out to the meadow, and I showed Scott the area in which I saw the thing. There was no bad smell, which are sometimes reported with Bigfoot sightings. There were full-grown trees ripped right out of the ground. Branches, foliage, and leaf debris was everywhere. The smell of fresh pine and sap was pretty strong. We couldn't figure out what the heck could have done that, but it looked like a tornado went through there, ripping up the place. We left that day, and we never told anyone else about it. The other guys that went with us to the dredge had heard the screams and acknowledged that something wasn't right. They wanted to leave it at that, though. I haven't been back there since, but I wouldn't mind getting a group together and heading up that way again to explore a bit. My experience is so similar to the ones on this website, BigfootEncounters.com, that I visited that it's pretty remarkable. However, I'm still unsure of what I saw, and I can't really make a conclusive claim that I, in fact, did see a Bigfoot. I do believe that they most likely exist, but I'm still unsure. I'm not very experienced with the outdoors. The screams I heard could have been anything, really. I do think it's a pretty big coincidence that this matches up with other experiences, but that doesn't mean much. I could have seen a bear or something standing on its hind legs, but it didn't look like a bear. It looked like a hairy man, and it was huge. But I'm both a believer and a skeptic, so I can't really say for sure what it was. It all still pretty insane experience, though. One I'll never forget. My name is Zach, and I was the only witness... I'm glad this site exists, because up till now I felt pretty alone. 
I'm glad others have experienced the same kind of phenomena. It helps me deal with it for sure. Zach, December 15th, 2009. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. An old Bob Titmus story. Robert Merle Titmus, December 24th, 1918 through November 15th, 1997. Age, 79. By Larry Batson. In the last years of Bob Titmus's life, I occasionally talked to him on the phone when he was up to it. One day he told me about being up in the Bluff Creek area tracking Bigfoot, collecting hair samples, looking for footprints or whatever he could find. He related this incident, which occurred about a year or two before the Patterson-Gimlin footage had been filmed. Titmus was sure his memory was starting to fail him, but this event he remembered perfectly. He was deep in the back country of Bluff Creek, by himself, one afternoon, and at the time he was certain there was a Sasquatch or Sasquatches very close by the evidence that he was finding. He was so involved and so focused that he lost track of the time and the sun was starting to go down. The density of the forest overcame him. He suddenly realized that the day was getting too dark to find his way back to his main campsite. Titmus realized that he was going to have to stay put until morning because trying to find his way out in the darkness would be dangerous and foolish. The nights can be quite cold and he really was not wearing enough clothing to just lie in the woods and try to sleep, so he began to dig a pit for him to sleep in. After he finished digging his bed, he laid in it and started covering himself with a thick layer of leaves, branches, and pine needles. After he finished, the only part of him that was exposed was a small area around his face. He was quite comfortable, sufficiently warm enough, and he had no problem going to sleep. Titmus guessed that the time was probably around 1 a.m. when he was startled awake by the sound of something moving through the forest nearby, and it seemed from the sounds to be heading in his direction. He could hear the sound of heavy footsteps crashing methodically through the forest brush, breaking limbs and so forth. At first he thought that it was a bear, but it wasn't long before he realized it was too noisy for a bear. He came closer and closer, and then it stopped. Titmus could hear the thing breathing. Not just breathing, but also <laughs> sniffing the air like it was trying to pick up a scent, and now he realized that it had indeed picked up his scent, but could not figure out where he was. With just his face exposed, Titmus was very well concealed from what he came to understand had to be a Sasquatch. All of a sudden, it started screaming, breaking branches and throwing rocks in his direction. Titmus held very still, very quiet. The Sasquatch started moving around, pacing back and forth through the forest, continuing to scream, bellow, and throw debris. Titmus related that this behavior continued until about an hour before daybreak. Then, as the sun began to rise and light trickled through the forest canopy, the creature went away, and the forest fell silent again. 
he pulled himself out of his makeshift bed in the ground and started to look around, investigating the entire area. He walked in the direction of where the ruckus had come from, and he could not believe his eyes. It looked like a bulldozer had gone through the forest. Saplings had been pulled out of the ground, larger trees pushed over, broken, or snapped in two. There were branches covered with hair samples, and the ground was littered with footsteps. It was no bear. In later years, Titmus went back to Bluff Creek shortly after the Patterson footage had been filmed in uh, oh, October of 1967, and he saw the footprints on the sandbar the film subject had left, and he was certain that this was the same Sasquatch that he encountered the night that he slept in the pit in the wilds of Bluff Creek. A key figure in Sasquatch Bigfoot investigation for nearly 40 years, Titmus died in Chilliwack, British Columbia, July 1st, 1997, following a heart attack that he had suffered a few days before at his home in Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. He was 78. This is the end of the collection of five stories. Thank you for listening. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical, and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. A grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who, born and had passed all of his life on the frontier, told the story to me. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps, of the snow walkers and the specters, the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. It may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute both at the time and still more in remembrance weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was slain, seemingly by a wild beast the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighted very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky, timber-clad ground being from there onward impractical for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, 
and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream beyond which rose the steep mountain slope, covered with the unbroken growth of evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bowman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had again been torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook. The footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. 
about midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiar, sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried toward camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest waited on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles and the slanting sun rays, striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature printed deep in the soft soil told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, 
but apparently had romped and gambolled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and then had fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond reach of pursuit. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.